Well, if seven's your lucky number, we wish you a uh, happy July 7th today. Some people are all about the numbers. This would be a big deal, I would imagine, for people that are, you know, that always wore number seven in soccer. That always hope to be picked seventh overall in dodgeball. That have always included seven on their lotto picks. Seventh overall? Seven. Seven. Yeah, absolutely. Wearing number seven. seven, July 7th. A friend that got married on August 8th. I believe of 08, actually, for her eight, uh, for her culture. Eight was a huge and significant number. I just looked down on this, uh, this studio clock that we have here that has that has the world time on it to make sure that we're always bringing folks real talk right on time every time. And it just had seven, seven staring back at me. So I thought, I mean, people will never believe that we don't script the start of the show. I know how people will find it hard to believe, but it's true. As a matter of fact, this all is impromptu. All of this, believe it or not, was not written last night. What we do know is that this episode is presented by the team at Bitcoin Well, because as our presenting sponsor, they bring you each and every episode of Real Talk. I haven't checked in on the price of Bitcoin lately. Let's do this live. I mean, maybe you're listening to the podcast later today or a couple of days from now. So one Bitcoin right now, 43,444 Canadian dollars. By the time that's out of my mouth, it's changed. It's fluctuated. I know for a lot of people, it's, you know, you try to wrap your mind around it. If you're looking for advice on what it is or how to get started or how to approach the fluctuations Check in with the team at Bitcoin Well. These are the conversations they have every day. You'll find them under the Sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. Real Talk starts right now. Here's Ryan Jesperson. We'll be checking in with... Uh, I don't know. Mike Flanagan's not going to want us to call him a legendary wildfire expert. He's a, he's a scientist and he's director of Canada Wildfire. I'm really excited to have him on the show today. But he's you know he's he's going to make these comments when he comes on. Doctor Flanagan, he'll say things like, "It's a team effort. We work together. Everybody works together." But this guy is 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 if not the one of the definitive voices in Canada when it comes to understanding wildfire all right he's a, he's a meteorologist he's worked as a, a research scientist with the canadian forest service and he's an expert on weather and climate interactions and we're looking forward to that conversation that's coming up in about yeah we'll call it eight minutes time i love uh, his uh twitter yeah. profile bio it says fire guy weather guy fire guy weather guy uh, now i i i hope that mike flanagan's going to be all right uh in in answering a couple of questions about the connection, uh, if it exists or not, between wildfires and climate change. Mm. Because I know that there have been, like, there was one guy, this one guy that lives down in Calgary. Um, he was on Dragon's Den, this show, and um, he, he throws these really great garden parties uh, and, like, calls for the prime minister to be hung for trees. And I, think, I mean, there's, like, little things like that, too. But but he, uh, this other guy, w- was was talking about how there's no connection. And he was kind of laughing at the science. The the dragon den guy. The, the, the dragon and this guy out of Calgary. Right, yeah. But yeah. He's, like, he's, like, really, really rich. Right. So he probably, I guess, with that, would understand things like climate change and science and research and meteorology and fire. Right. So, because dollar value, well, higher dollar value. Intellect. Is, like, is equal wealth, to. Wealth, wealth. 
equals intellect. Higher intellect, right. Right, yeah. So so I, I hope that Dr. Mike Flanagan will be able to clarify because this guy out of Calgary, this really, really, really rich guy out of Calgary has been laughing at, at like climate change and Lytton, BC, the town that burned to the ground in 15 minutes. And then people were talking about how this is a permanent emergency and it needs to be taken seriously. But the really, really rich guy out of Calgary was saying, you don't have to worry about it. He was kind of laughing about it. So, so we thought maybe we, I'm just joking. Actually, the really, really, really rich guy did not impact our editorial decision to bring in Dr. Mike Flanagan, but we will ask Dr. Flanagan to touch on the assertion that the really, really, really rich guy made about the, the fact that there's no connection between climate change and wildfire. So that's coming up in just a little bit. In about an hour from now, I mean, we're, we're really talking about the environment quite a bit today, which I hope is okay with people because everybody actually lives in the environment. And um, whether you know it or News realize flash. Whether, News you, flash. whether you realize it today or not, you are breathing air and experiencing things. Um, you know, like like potentially the need to drink water, um, things like air and water and food do impact each and every one of us. And so we're going to talk about them every once in a while. And uh, we've booked a rock star, an environmental reporter by the name of Emily Atkin, who just moments ago, she probably still is feeling the the uh, the phantom earpiece in her ear. Anybody that's worn one knows about these. When you do big network television, you got those little earpieces. And Emily was like just on CNN, and she's going to be joining us uh, in about fifty five minutes time. You know, the fans of the really 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 rich guy down in Calgary are going to start taking shots. Oh, exactly, CNN, right? CNN, and now real exactly, exactly. I love that voice. Yeah, well, I've, that you do. I've, I've been practicing it for years. <laughs> So Emily is a host of the podcast Heated. Uh, she's also known, I think, would you say most known? At least she's very prominently known for for uh, founding and penning, let's say releasing, a daily climate newsletter by the name of Heated. Um, she's been a reporter for the New Republic, for Think Progress, and Emily will join us uh, in about 55 minutes from right now to talk about this explosive story by Greenpeace, this uh, investigative piece by the Greenpeace outlet unearthed. You've probably seen this, whether or not you've watched the video or not, about a 10-minute video making the rounds on social media about, a, I think it was a week ago today. It was last Wednesday that this story came out and, and all of a sudden, like everybody picked it up, right? This investigative journalist working for Greenpeace goes undercover and talks to Exxon lobbyists. And the, uh, the outcome is absolutely wild, he gets him on the record for for like half an hour. This is uh, this is Lawrence Carter. He's this investigative journalist for Greenpeace, and he gets these senior lobbyists, including Keith McCoy, on the record talking about how they've basically lied to people for years. And I know that everybody this morning is going to go, "Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah." <laughs> Not exactly. Like, what else are you going to tell us? Uh, but. I mean, the fact that you have people representing some of the biggest, not just the biggest oil companies in the world, the biggest companies in the world. We're talking about Exxon, BP, like major players. And this guy spells out the playbook, you know, probably what like Shea Weber would be trying to get Victor Hedman to do this morning to just spell out the playbook. That's a that's a hockey reference. I got it. Yeah. Weber. I got yeah. it. I got Mont- it. Shea Montreal. Weber. He's in. Yeah. Shea yeah. Weber. They might they might win the second game tonight. Um, might. But, but probably not. 
I hope they do, but they're probably not going to. These guys, these lobbyists lay out the playbook and they're like, yeah, Exxon has publicly supported a carbon tax. You know why? Because we knew it would never pass. And you want to know how we know it would never pass? Because we talked to a bunch of lawmakers and they're not all Republicans either. We're not going to politically stereotype here. As a matter of fact, the majority of the 11 American senators that Exxon relies on, the majority are Democrats. <gasps> Stop the presses. So Emily's going to take us into this story. What's the significance of it? And then I'm going to find a way. I know that she's she's kind of a big deal and she's checking in from the United States. I want to know. I mean, I doubt she's heard about this, the Allen inquiry in Alberta. But but this is kind of the Allen inquiry flipped on its head, right? This the, the Allen inquiry. You guys remember this? This is the one that every once in a while just gets kind of like a just kind of a top up of of funds out of the big slush bucket, right? Like like the, this government of fiscal hawks still has a few slush buckets where they can go top up all the pockets of all their pals, right? Nurses are getting salary styled back. Don't worry. We'll talk about that today as well. The hot off the presses. We've got a ton of emails and you can keep them coming to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Some of them anonymous, some of them not so much. But this Allen inquiry, you know, has been the, the Alberta government's perception of fulfilling a promise to go after the special interest groups, the foreign funded special interest groups that would act against Alberta's oil interests. Right. And there's been extension after I'm 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 actually not trying to be snide right now. I actually do forget how many extensions have been granted. I think it's four, three or four extensions granted already. It's over budget and still nothing. This is kind of the flip side. This is an environmental advocacy group going after the lobbyists with their own version of a special inquiry by way of investigative journalism. So I suspect that our viewing and listening audience over the next couple of days as you hear this show are going to have plenty to say about this and we encourage you to get in touch with us as you as you make sense of it all you know the hashtag that will follow of course through the show sarah hoyle's keeping an eye on it me too as best i can is is real talk rj that hashtag is powered by the team at park power and if you don't know right now Park Power in the internet, electricity, and natural gas game. They've been serving Alberta for coming up on 10 years. This, this is like a grassroots. Started out as a small business. This is an independent, relatively small business. And so if you go right now to parkpower.ca, you can make these choices. You get to choose where you get your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. Why not make it from them? They give you opportunities on the website to compare rates. They make a great argument. For why they want you to come over there, including the fact that they offer some of the best utility rates in the province, and you can cancel or change your rate anytime at parkpower.ca. Also wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that the team at McBain Camera right now, this is a, Sam, I was meaning to ask you about this. They've got their big trade-in event going on right now. I know you're a big camera guy. Are you the type of guy that when you look in your camera bag, are you always looking for ways to upgrade it? Or are you a guy, I'm, I'm a little bit more, I sometimes let the dust settle on my lenses because I become sentimentally attached. Yeah, I... Uh... 
I mean, I, I have some old, very cheap lenses that I don't really have much attachment to anymore. But like, generally speaking, it's, uh, you know, you buy quality once. You right? buy quality once. And I'll, I'll buy 20-year-old lenses and put adapters on them and that kind well, of stuff. Well, this you know? is That's why this great. is a great yeah. opportunity, right? Because a lot of lenses can be, you know, literally thousands of dollars. But if you check this out at McBain Camera. And they're Camera, always still good. That's yeah, the great Ma- thing. It's like Ma- good lenses never die. McBainCamera.com. You check this out. So, so they've got their sale on right now. This is a trade-in event. It only runs till the end of July. So this is why we're really making sure that we keep this on your radar. Uh, a 25% bonus value for your photo equipment trade-ins at the trade-in event running through till July 31st. And you can you can find out more details on the website. It's a really neat initiative and an opportunity for people at different stages of their photography careers to, to kind of reload the bag or maybe reload your wallet if you're not using that gear anymore. They go from the vintage stuff all the way to the brand new gear. So there's a great selection at McBainCamera.com. All right, well, let's take a look. I mean, uh, you know, our, our audience members that are joining us every day out of British Columbia, you know, the eyes of the nation are on BC right now as wildland firefighters continue to battle blazes. If you if you look right now, you can check out their dashboard. This is via the government of BC. It's simple to find. Just Google BC wildfire dashboard. You, you can see here 204 active fires. That's 19 new ones over the past couple of days. 747 uh, this current year, that's up 111 this week. Now, without context, these numbers might not mean much. So let's go to the guy who knows exactly what he's talking about. Dr. Mike Flanagan is the research chair of predictive science uh, services, rather uh, emergency management and fire science at Thompson Rivers University. He's the scientific director of the Canadian Partnership for Wildland Fire Science, otherwise known as Canada Wildfire. He's been studying fire and weather and climate interactions, including the potential impact of climate change, lightning ignited forest fires and more for more than 40 years. Mike, it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome to Real Talk. Uh, great to be with you, Ryan. These numbers here, I mean, for, for the average civilian, uh, without context, we go, gosh, it's almost 750 fires this year in B.C., 19 new ones in the last two days, more than 200 fires burning at once. Uh, you know, people w- w- would sit here and go, it's hard to wrap your mind around that, let alone come to an understanding of how to best fight it or prevent it in future. How does a guy like you approach numbers like the ones we're dropping here? Well, you compare it to what's happened in the past. And right now there's a lot more fires than we would normally expect this time of year, a lot more area burned than we would expect, but it's mostly about impact. I mean, the loss of Lytton, the loss of life, those two lives in Lytton, you know, that's tragic and sad. So that's the real impact of these fires. But it's important to realize that BC is just at the beginning of their fire season. So this is a very early start. Typically BC, mid-July, late July, August, that's their fire season. And it reminds me of 2017, which was a record-breaking year in BC. And that started on July 7th, Friday, July 7th. I remember it well, 2017. So we're off to an exceedingly early start. And, you know, we just have to wait to see what happens. But if I have a minute here, it's really important for people to understand the recipe for a wildfire. You need three ingredients, the vegetation, we call it fuel, because that's the stuff that burns, the needles, the leaves, the twigs, the shrubs, how much you have, how dry it is, really important. Second, you need ignition. Humans, generally in the spring, lightning dominates in the summer. Third, 
hot, dry, windy weather than that record smashing heat wave, obviously dry. So you get all three ingredients, you have a wildfire. And what that applies to British Columbia, Alberta, the Amazon, the Arctic, Australia, California, you name it. Okay, that's the recipe. So it's important to understand that recipe. And things are, the potential is sky high in British Columbia for a very active fire season if this heat and dry weather continues. So are you seeing parallels, I mean, with regards to the factors that you've outlined, obviously temperature and, and the fuel and, and uh, you know, I mean, with regards to lack of precipitation and you talk about 2017, I mean, are there almost parallel storylines here? And, and if so, do you start to forecast what July and August might be? Do people who are deploying firefighting crews start to do that same prognosticating? So it's like 2017, except for it's much earlier than 2017. So what's the fire season going to be like? It really depends on that day-to-day weather. And another background information for you that's really important to help us understand fire is it's all about the extremes. The tail wags a dog in the fire world. So what do I mean? 3% 3% of fires in Canada burn, 97% of the area burned. And most of these happen on a few critical days of extreme fire weather, like we had last Wednesday when the town of Lytton burned down. So if we can identify those extreme periods, then we can act responsibly. But, you know, our weather forecasts are good for about a week. So I don't know what the rest of July or August is going to be like, but if it continues in this vein, there's the potential, uh, underlying potential, for a very active fire season in British Columbia and elsewhere across Western Canada. Mike, let's let's talk about Lytton. We, we were here on the show marveling at the temperatures that they were seeing. I mean, they were shattering. They, they shattered temperature records, their own records, three days in a row, uh, almost 49. Well, Canada-wide records. Canada-wide. Canada-wide I mean, record. Yeah, and we, and we were showing, I mean, there, there, were, there were only five American states that have even seen those same temperatures. I mean, take a look at this. Unless you're in basically New Mexico, Nevada, Southern California, um, you know, you, you, they, the Americans haven't even seen temps like this. So, so we're sitting here and we're talking, we were joking about it, but we're going, oh, wow, like, isn't that amazing? And 49 degrees and you're, you know, frying eggs on the sidewalk. The next thing you know, you know, a day later, 15 minutes, and this entire community is, is absolutely leveled. Uh, your insight into Lytton. So it's under investigation, so, and it will be some time. These investigations take months and maybe even years, but they will probably start releasing information because the public will demand some information. And like the type of information they'll come up with is, was it lightning caused or human caused? It appears that it's a human caused and may, you know, like it's still early days in the investigation may have been caused by a train, maybe. Okay. And, but, what I can tell you is it was extreme fire weather conditions. You know, the temperature that day was 49.6, almost 50 degrees. You know, I have colleagues around the world contact me saying, what's going on in Canada? Almost 50 degrees. That's yeah. crazy. But the, the, the fuels were bone dry. So when the fuels are bone dry, like when you walk in the forest, that crunch, 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 it's so easy for a fire to start and so easy for a fire to spread. And the winds were just howling. I'm not sure if people are familiar with Lytton, but it's in a valley and the winds just howl there. So you had extreme fire weather, the fuels were dry 
and you know, literally you had minutes. It reminds me of Slave Lake where you know residents were leaving the front door and their back porch was on fire. You had no time. You just had to get out. Yeah, I it's uh, I mean, the video is remarkable. And uh, I mean, I think, too, you and I have spoken before. You and I spoke during and after uh, the Fort McMurray fire. I mean, the beast, everybody called in and, and those evacuation videos. I'll never forget. I, I, I was I feel like even to this day, when somebody tells me they're from Fort McMurray, I want to like slap them on the shoulder, pound their fist and just commend. I mean, that entire city did such an amazing job of evacuating the, the Suncor and the Syncrude workers in the camps. And I mean, just the whole thing. It was like a community of 100,000 people had run drills. I mean, many of them had in their workplaces, but it was like they'd run drills on how to evacuate. I'll never forget it. No, it was, it's a, it's amazing that there weren't numerous fatalities in in Fort McMurray. I mean, you look around the world: Greece, Portugal, California, arguably maybe the best fire management agency in the world, and you see you know tens or hundreds of people dying from wildland fire. So you know, in Canada, it's really rare. Uh, are we good? Are we fortunate? I think it's perhaps a combination of both. Mike, I want to I'm going to jump all over the map, I guess, almost literally with you, because I want to talk about different fires and some of the specifics. But I also want to get into some of the conceptual stuff like Premier John Horgan in British Columbia has has done an aerial tour of lit and he described it as 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 literally nothing left. Uh, that's the premier of British Columbia. He said Lytton will be rebuilt as a community for the future. He says that Lytton's rebuild can be a case study. In the context of wildfire, acknowledging changes in climate, what does a community built for the future look like? So, yes, uh, some people are on Twitter saying, what's the definition of insanity? You know, repeating your mistakes, because Lytton did burn down in the 50s and it's burnt down again, unfortunately. But I quite don't see it quite that way. Um, building materials. There's a number of programs. There's guidebooks from uh, the Natural Research Council. I know Impact Insurance is coming out with guidelines for new homes in British Columbia to make them more fire resilient. So building materials. And, and there's a program called Fire Smart Canada it has seven principles about how to make your home and community more fire res- resistant, resilient. We can't make our homes fireproof. But there are things we can do. A lot of it's common sense. In California, uh, many jurisdictions, you can have no flammable material within five feet of your house. Think about that. Five feet. And whether that's landscape materials, shrubs, or even a fence coming up to your house, it cannot be wood. It can't be flammable. Uh, so, And we manage the fuels around the community. That's one of the seven principles of Fire Smart, so that you remove those conifers, which are highly flammable, and either have grass green grass you have sprinklers sprinklers really work well but the thing about sprinklers is that when a fire enters a community and this happened in slave lake it happened in fort mcmurray the first things to go are municipal power followed by municipal water so you need independent power and independent water for those sprinklers to run but there is wire there and so you just have you know some sort of generating facility to run when off grid Uh, so there are ways you can build safely Build back better. It is possible, but you, you know, that is a very extreme fire risk locality unless you modify the fuels. So I always try and bring things back to the three ingredients. So, you know, if you can get 
manage the fuels, you can reduce the fire risk because we can't manage the weather, the, you know, the hot 49.6, we have no control over that. Uh, but we cannot manage human caused fires. We can't do anything about lightning, but human caused fires, we can prevent. So if it was a railway, I'm not saying it is, but if it was, there are things we can do to harden the system so that the brakes or whatever caused that undercarriage, whatever caused the spark, maintenance. You can also control the fuel around the rail line. They do that in part, but perhaps they can do better maintenance. So there are ways to reduce the risk of wildfire. This has nothing to do with what you and I are talking about, but I was just reading a, a, a longer form piece about, I mean, some some uh, scientists that monitor the grizzly habitat. Major difference in conversations about grizzly bear populations in B.C. and Alberta. Uh, in Alberta, the population, you could describe it as languishing. And when they lose breeding females, uh, it's a really big deal. And uh, there was just a sow and a cub killed on, on a on a rail line, killed by a train just a short time ago. And I was reading how a lot of people are really calling on, uh, you know, uh, you know, CN or whoever to see. I don't know who's running the, that train in particular, but to do a better job with grain spillage on the side of the tracks. Um, you know, you, you take a look at this as well. If it was a train that started this fire, I mean, it's it's you wonder if it's time for a and even what that looks like. I think people underestimate how much power railways actually have those big companies um, and how much support they have from different jurisdictional governments. But I'd, I'd be you know, I'd be curious to see when a bigger national conversation starts to happen about all of these things. Yeah, and power lines are another example, and power lines can start fires. In California, for years, I've been saying, well, you can bury the power lines. And the argument was, well, that's too expensive. Yeah. And the 2018 fires, the, the damages from those power line fires and others was over $100 billion. So, yeah, you should have buried them. And, you know, but there are ways we can reduce the risk, whether it's a power line or what railway. All human-caused fires are preventable, and uh, you know that's one of the strategies. And actually, some good news is you know area burned in Canada has doubled, but the number of human-caused fires and area burned from human-caused fires has been decreasing. And this is you know due to education, fire bans, etc. But on the flip side, the bad news is area burned from lightning caused fires has been increasing much more than the decrease of, of human caused fires because we have doubled our area burn since the 1970s. Mike, why uh, is that? Uh, simple answer, climate change. All right? mm -hmm. uh, we live in a warmer world and the warmer it is, the more fire we see. And people say, whoa, 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 why is temperature so important? And here I'm not talking about individual fire like the Lytton fire or the Fort McMurray fire. I'm talking about fire over a larger area, like BC or Alberta, over a longer period of time, like a fire season. And you say, well, why? Why temperature? Okay, three reasons. Fire guys love threes. All right. First, longer fire seasons. And in Alberta, our official fire season is now March 1st. It used to be April 1st, about five or six years ago. Second, the warmer it is, the more lightning we see. I just told you that we're increasing our area burn due to lightning-caused fires. Recent research suggests a doubling of lightning in places like Canada by the end of the century. And all things being equal, more lightning means more fire. But things aren't equal, actually, because as the temperature increases, the ability of the atmosphere to suck that moisture out of the fuel increases almost exponentially. So that means the fuels are drier unless there's an increase in precipitation. Our models of the future 
suggest that's not going to be the case. So drier fuels, I can't emphasize this enough. Drier fuels means it's easier for a fire to start, easier for a fire to spread, and it means more fuels available to burn, which means a higher intensity fire, more energy, which makes it difficult to impossible to extinguish. Dr. Mike Flanagan, our guest, uh, Director of Canada Wildfire. Uh, Mike, I've been tr- I've been trying to uh, and I've been really looking forward to this conversation because I'm not, I don't have the scientific chops to make these arguments or to get into this. But I I've noticed that let's say it's the middle of December and uh, and all of a sudden, you know, our, our our neighbors down in Calgary experience one of these wonderful Chinooks where all of a sudden it's like zero degrees or it's plus four Right. And then you get people on Twitter. I'm pretty sure they're not climate scientists, but they'll say things. They'll say things like, tell me more about global warming. Tell me more about climate change. Hey, if this is global warming, bring it on four degrees in December. I love it. And then all the other, you know, then the other team, the other side starts coming at him on Twitter and saying, you idiot. You know, there's a difference between climate and weather. And maybe you should learn and maybe you should study. And then we have this big argument. Right. But guess what's happening? Now, all these people that are calling all those people idiots for equating weather and climate or not doing that are now saying, oh, Lytton's 49 degrees. If you needed any more evidence of climate change and global warming, look no further because climate change is evident and it's happening right here and now. And then the other guys are saying, hang on a second, six months ago, you called me an idiot for taking today's weather and making a comment on climate change. So who's wrong, Mike? So they're, they're both wrong. Okay. Uh, and this is starting to stray. I'm a fire guy. I am a weather guy as well, but I don't do attribution science. It's just what it's called. And uh, I can give some names for some great guests to address this issue. Sure. But uh, one thing about climate change, and you're right about variability, especially in Alberta, our weather is quite variable from day to day or hour to hour, or year to year. Uh, so, you have to take that into account by looking at longer time periods. But one of the key things for fire, and I always try and circle it back to fire, is the extremes. And we talked about the extremes drive the fire business. It's those extreme fire weather days. It's not the average day in summer where it's you know warm, but you know nothing much happens. But those hot, dry, windy days. And what we're seeing, if you look at the you know the last forty years, and we just have done this and published a paper or in the process that we're seeing more of the extreme fire weather days. And, you know, we're seeing more extreme events. Climate change isn't causing the event, it's just making them more intense, more extreme. And this recent heat wave is, is an example of that. The likelihood of that heat wave happening is like one in a thousand years. It's, it's really off the scales for, for June to see that kind of record smashing heat. You know, like for hundreds of stations broke all time records. Uh, it was just off the scale. Um, so we are seeing more extreme fire weather, and this is associated with a warming planet. And, you know, we're going to continue to warm and we have to deal with it. And even if we have, you know, stopped producing greenhouse gases today, we're going to continue to warm for decades because there's lags in our climate systems, especially the ocean systems. So we're going to continue to warm. And yes, there are some benefits to warming but overall you know sea level rise more fire more drought uh we have a real challenge ahead of us 
uh, a viewer by the name of James who's joining us live on YouTube right now says, I always try to remind people that we're not saving the earth from climate change. We're saving ourselves. James says the earth has seen worse and will recover, but we won't. How does a guy like you? I, I mean, I don't ask you how you sleep at night because that feels like a loaded question. But what what keeps you awake at night, Mike? So, yeah, it's it's really the surprise element that you know, the unknown unknowns, you know, we have models of the future and they're models. They're far from perfect. Okay. But they give us a general indication and fair degree of confidence and temperature. We are warming and will continue to warm unless we do something. Precipitation is much more complicated, but in many parts we expect drying. But as I said, it's, you know, not quite as reliable, but our models could, could be completely wrong and could be much worse than we expect. Okay, that's the scary part. Is it's bad. It's going to get worse, but it could get much worse. And you know, how do we deal with this? Individuals do their things. Cities do their things. States, provinces do their things. Federal governments, industry. We all have to work together to resolve this. You know, and I, I'm still an optimist, if you can believe it. Uh, you know, sometimes. Humans need a bloody nose or two before we get our act together. We're getting some bloody noses, so let's get our act together, okay? And But, you know, I'm a fire guy. Bring it back to fire. We have to learn to live with fire and smoke. It's not going to go away, and nor should it, because it's part of the natural system. It's mother nature at work. It's the cycle of life. Our forests are used to fire. They survive and even thrive in fire. So they will survive well, maybe unless we have too much fire and then we're back to a grassland or something. But there'll always be fuel to burn. There'll always be ignition, whether there's no people or not. There's always lightning and there's always extreme weather. So we will continue to see fire in the future, but we need to manage it responsibly. And I, I see the picture of the firefighters. My hat's off to the firefighters, oh, man. especially in British Columbia. I mean, the temperature's they wear protective equipment, okay? It's a hard, dirty job at the best of times, smoky. And then you throw in 40-some degrees of heat, and, oh, man, that's, you know, my hat's off to them. It's a, it's a, it's like a calling, these wildland firefighters. And, and you see, you typically see them, in the, and, and they're, they're under-celebrated, right? We'll see, like, if Alberta can afford it, and I'm talking about, you know, manpower. I'm not talking about cost. Um, although maybe both come into play, but, you know, we will send firefighters to B.C. or Ontario will send them here or New Zealand will send firefighters to Ontario or whatever. Uh, they travel and they can travel the world and apply their skill sets there. Let's talk about the crews, Mike. I mean, is if, when you talk about fire season, do you get these hypothetical scenarios or can they play out into real life where you may find yourself with a shortage of available firefighters? I mean, what, what does it look like from that angle? That has happened. And, you know, 2015, Alberta, we ran out of helicopters. There was so so much fire activity that we couldn't get any more crews or helicopters. And But you're right. There's a lot of sharing that goes around. Um, equipment, firefighters, you know, and they use something called CIFC, Canadian Interagency Forest Fire Center, uh, you know, arranges the transfers. We also work with Americans called NIFC, National Energy uh, fire center and we work with south africans and new zealanders and australians and and bring up as required uh, but you know I, I would like to point out that bc is actually have 
has a number of studies looking at the health and safety of wildland firefighters. And I think that's really critical because, you know, they're working in a smoky environment. And one thing we know about smoke is, you know, it's bad for humans, okay? It really is. And the more we learn, the more we find out it's really bad for humans. So um, my hat's off to BC Wildfire Service for doing those studies. Mike, it's been, uh, generally speaking, I want to, I'm grateful for your time. We've got to let you go here, but I, I want to ask you in closing, you know, we've seen, we're going to be talking about one of my favorite places in the world in just a minute. We're going to be talking about Jasper National Park. It's been interesting to see them and a number of other parks and national parks, you know, make efforts clearing fuel. And, and it's obvious in some areas what's going on. I know that communities have done that as, as well. And in fact, I think maybe not especially, but like communities in the boreal forest in northern BC, northern Alberta and, and, and whatnot have, have pushed out these barriers i mean you talk about in california building codes around fences and things like that but i mean the entire communities have pulled what have proven to be somewhat unpopular moves right you know what i'm talking about wiping out maybe 100 meters worth of trees or whatever to create these distances they're difficult decisions because in many cases residents have bought those properties because they're so close to these towering spruce trees or or what have you um when it comes to you know, the general population, when it comes to political will and political leadership, what sorts of things should should people be considering collectively to reduce the risk of communities impacted by wildfires? So, yes, and a lot of those programs are fire smart programs in the province of Alberta and B.C. and others put money towards those programs. But you're right in some places and I can say Brad Creek and they're not popular. OK, because people love their trees and their wildlife. But you don't have to remove all trees. It's just conifers. I, I have a colleague, Dennis Quintilio, who says, just remove all the conifers within two kilometers of every community. We have no problem. <laughs> and he, he's, he's right, but that's not possible. So, but you replace the conifers or you reduce the number of conifers and put broadleaf, whether it's aspen or birch or something like that. You also, the way you plan your community, Green grass is a very effective firebreak. So you put your soccer pitches, your baseball diamonds, your golf courses, you design your community with those green firebreaks so that, you know, it helps protect your community. But yes, people love their forests and I do too. Uh, I love my trees. I wire my elm tree in front of my house recently because it's been so dry here. Uh, but you have to kind of balance that risk. I was in a box cannon in California, just outside of San Diego a couple, couple of years ago uh, tour and their program there said they'll come clean up your property for free no charge and because you live in a box Kenya that's the most extreme situation because there's only one way out okay and the fire starts at the you know the open end you're you're snookered all right and a lot of the homeowners said no I don't want you cleaning up and that's not even taking trees out that's just cleaning the stuff on the ground uh, but you know as a community, you're as strong as your weakest link because the way the fire enters the community is a rain of burning embers. If you remember the video from Fort McMurray, mm -hmm. they're just a rain of burning embers and starts a fire. One house catches fire and that becomes a domino effect if the houses are fairly close together and bang, bang, bang. And, you know, that's exactly exactly what happened in parts of Fort McMurray, unfortunately. Wow. Uh, Mike, a, a question snuck in right at the end here from Joanne, and it's a good one. I'm not, I'll am not. i recognize you're not a wildlife biologist, unless maybe I missed that part of your CV. Maybe you are. Uh, but what can you tell us about the potential impact that the pine beetle has had on some of the prevalence of wildfires or the growth of them? So, yes, uh, pine beetle, 
you know, I always say that, you know, the biggest impact on our forest from climate change is wildfires. But I have some entomologists who say mountain pine beetle. And that's a good argument because the warmer winters aren't killing the little buggers. Okay? And so they are spreading and dead trees are even more flammable than live conifers. So, yes, it's an explosive situation. And you know, especially the first few years after the needles start to fall off, it becomes less flammable. But that first, those when you see the red and orange stages, like we've seen around Jasper, extremely flammable. And uh, yeah, some gasoline. Uh, so if you see, so if, I mean, if you're if you're the superintendent of a national park or or whatever, if you're the mayor or the reeve of a community or whoever's calling these shots. Uh, and and, and your, your community has been impacted in a big way by the mountain pine beetle. You can see all this. I mean, it looks like a tinderbox. You, you know, it feels like you're surrounded by a stack of matches. I mean, how do you, do you see controlled burns becoming more and more of a thing? Is this is this a strategy that you think that I mean, there, is there science behind it to support it? Yeah, Parks Canada, to their credit, has been doing a lot of prescribed burning in the parks for decades and decades. And Jane Park and, and Banff, you know, you, you can't burn really close to the community because tourists don't like smoke. And yeah, I, I get that. So they use mechanical treatment, chainsaws, et cetera. Close to town, farther out they burn. And uh, it's a very effective burning program. And getting fire back on the landscape is a good thing, okay? And a lot of provinces now have a policy is, you know, allowing fire when and where possible back on the landscape because at times fire is beneficial. And people say, beneficial? I say, yes, mountain pine beetle, for example, spruce budworm in Ontario. You got stands of it, and if a wildfire is coming, you know, and there's no communities in the path, let it burn. It's mother nature at work, resets the clock, recycle, refresh. Um, So yeah, my hat's off to Jasper and Banff and their burning programs. to try and manage the risk. Dr. Mike Flanagan, you can see it in his eyes. I know a lot of people, technically, Mike, the majority will be listening to you on a podcast, but those that are watching on YouTube can see it in your eyes. I mean, you you really give a rip about what you talk about, which is why we're so grateful for your expertise here on the show. Uh, Mike is the director of Canada Wildfire. You can find him on Twitter at Mike Flanagan, and you can read uh, more at CanadaWildfire.org. It's great to reconnect with you. Yeah, great to see you again. We we met at a conference, and I was on that that radio station you used to be on with you a couple of times. Uh, yeah, we, it's nice to connect again. Yeah, I you think bet, it was supposed to, you were supposed to MC a chancellor's forum on artificial intelligence. I was part of the committee, but then that that nasty pandemic hit. You know what? So that was one of me. the that was one of the first uh, that was one of the first events canceled on the calendar. Yeah, I think we I think we missed that one by about seventy two hours. Um, but I'll look forward to rescheduling it, Mike. It's always a pleasure when our paths cross in person. Thanks for this. Great. Thanks, Ryan. Yeah, you bet. Uh, Mike Flanagan, just a beauty, obviously. And, and he, yeah, so he's talking about this conference where we first met in person. It's, uh, the Alberta Emergency Management Agency. And I've been proud to host there for, I think the last three or four years. And, and, um, it's a, it's a fascinating collective. It's a fascinating group. It's, it's a, a room of at times, I mean, not during the pandemic, obviously, but, but other times about 600 people in the room and they're all, I mean, I actually like looking at the parking lot outside the AEMA conference. Cause it's all like fire chiefs, d- 
disaster risk, like first response, uh, search and rescue, some law enforcement, all this stuff, right, from all these different communities. Mm. And so they, they've all got like their pickups there, but it's like the fire chief pickup, you know, kind of those like if you were like I, it doesn't I was going to say if you're nine years old, but it doesn't matter if you're nine years old or 49 years old, you're still like these are so cool. And then you go in and they've all got the I don't know what firefighters come at the bars. You know, they've all got like they've all got the chiefs or the captains markings on their uniforms and it's just this room of people these are the people that do exactly what the name of the conference would suggest they are emergency management personnel and so mike did a really uh compelling presentation on wildfire and climate change and community resilience and community protection and all these types of things what's really fascinating about this conference is that they also talk about things like cyber attacks and pandemics mm. and and you realize that you think emergency management is not just fire and flooding right and to to realize behind the scenes that there are hundreds or thousands of of skilled professionals in every province and territory across canada that are preparing for for literally the absolute worst uh, it's a fascinating room to be in. Uh, our thanks to Dr. Mike Flanagan for joining us. Uh, Erica's watching in and says, this guest is an absolute realist. He would annihilate the extreme views on either side mm -hmm. of the climate argument in a debate. And I love it. And I totally agree. Uh, you know, unseen strangers watching and says, it sounds to me like in the in the example, the example I brought to Mike, I was I was ranting to you two off air about this before about everybody saying true story, true right? story. Well, but it's a great point, isn't it? It's a great point that that people that are sounding the alarm on climate change criticize people that in the middle of winter talk about Chinooks and warm weather as evidence that you know, global warming is not really a thing or climate change isn't really a thing or whatever. And they say weather isn't climate and learn and do your and then six months later, everybody forgets that and says, oh, it's 49 degrees in Lytton. Climate change. This is evidence of climate change. And, and then it turns into this fight where, I mean, it's just nobody wins. I think the, and, the thing that's confusing, though, is that, you know, we get told that the two degrees that there's it's the two degrees yeah. rise of the global climate that is but these are trends you're talking about a trend cr yes a long-term trend not like next tuesday it's 34 degrees as opposed to climate change as opposed to 32 right? degrees so unseen <laughs> yeah exactly so unseen stranger though says it sounds to me like the lefties were actually correct in the last example the average temperature goes up driven in part by extremely hot days here and there which is an interesting comment what bothers me about that comment is that as we kicked off this segment and talked about how, you know, we all like breathe air and drink water. This should not be a lefties versus righties conversation. Taking climate change seriously, protecting our environment, protecting our communities should not belong to the left, nor does it. And if you lean right and if you're a conservative, I would suggest if you're a reasonable, pragmatic, intelligent type of person, the last thing you would want to characterize your entire political ideology is resistance to science. That's just not the way it goes. This shouldn't be a left versus right debate. And that actually drives me crazy like that. That to me is is one of the real big problems with discussing so many. I mean, gosh, we're going to be talking to, to Crystal Mundy in about 45 minutes from now. She's the founder of this Safer Shopping Network. Um, she's a, a doctoral student. She's getting her doctorate in clinical psychology. Interesting thing. She's going to talk about workplaces and masks and people feeling safe, whether it's a perception of more safe shopping or whether it is more safe shopping. We'll get into all of that.
But I see the same thing happening. People are wearing masks when you don't have to. Lefties. People are tearing off their masks and burning them as soon as they possibly can. Right wingers. What? Now, the Venn diagram may intersect, right? You know, the Venn diagram, right? The two circles defining people. And you can say something like, you know, the Venn diagram of um, people who believe the Montreal Canadiens are going to win four straight and win the Stanley Cup. And people who still believe, I actually don't want to ruin anything. I was going to say still believe in, but like, why would you do that? Um, never know who's listening. Never know what little ears are listening. Sasquatch? Yes. That's exactly what I was going to say. Although, have we totally ruled out <laughs> Bigfoot? Have we totally? Touche. They, they, conti- they continue to discover new species at the bottom of the ocean all the time. The Ogo Are you Pogo? talking about aquatic Bigfoot? Well, you never know. I'm just saying. I'm just saying that we discover new species in the Amazon rainforest. This is true, actually. On the yeah, ocean true, yes. floor. Well, of course it's true. You think I would have said it if it wasn't true? It's like when people say to me, "Good question." Yeah, no shit. Why do you think I asked it? Just having a little fun here, everybody. Just having a little bit of fun. Is it fun? <laughs> is it though? Uh, you can let us know what you think about this. I'm, I'm just stoked to hear that people like Patrick are tuned in right now. Patrick says, I come from a family of four wildland firefighters. I do not want to go to family dinners at Patrick's house if they're going to be comparing our levels of bravery or hard work. If they're just going to be sharing their stories, Patrick, I would love to sit around that table. Patrick's going, how did this turn into you being invited to our family dinner table? That, he said, I said nothing about that. A family of four wildland firefighters. It takes a special person to head into that. I was telling you a few days ago about an opportunity I had back in Hinton, Alberta in the mid 2000s. Uh, yeah, no, I guess it was. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter when it was, but say 10 years ago, something like that in Hinton to be able to put on some protective gear and go in under escort and shoot video of these firefighters at work up close. And it was unbelievable. The sounds were remarkable. The, the overhead flybys of the aircraft and then I was telling you about the odd time a, a tree trunk would literally just explode. Um, and then there's these moments as well of like a really kind of a creepy silence where it kind of feels like you talk to firefighters. I don't want to sort of speak out of turn here. I've not walked a mile in the boots. I'm not going to start acting like I know what I'm talking about. But, if, but, but they will tell you anecdotally that fires have personalities, that fires uh, have individual traits like fires kind of I mean, not technically and totally. But fires, especially wildland fires, kind of like sleep at night in a way. They like simmer and rest and recharge. And then in the morning, they fire up again with the wind. And they, I mean, there's all, not totally. I mean, obviously, we've seen at night fires can burn like crazy. Um, Have you seen that film, uh, Backdraft? It's really, it's an oldie, but it. Have I seen Backdraft? (laughs) Have I seen that film, Backdraft? Yes. But in I that- wanted to lose my virginity on the top of a fire truck on the way to a call. <laughs> Have I ever seen backdraft? Was that the was that the scene you were just about to reference or? Um, no, but oh. we but we could go there. Surprisingly, yeah, I was actually it, it was in the film they talk about the the personality of a fire and uh, that that it breathes and that yeah. you can and that's just what it reminds me of and yeah I mean, but also fire is mesmerizing. It's so powerful. Um. I can just, you know, watching fish or watching fires. I can be lost for hours. Yeah. When they're contained and they're safe, of course. Colette says fires sleep in the winter as well, which is true. I've heard about this in, in, in the peat 
underground we've done some fascinating mm. um on like sort of carbon natural carbon sequestration i don't want to get too into it but yeah there's a lot of stuff that can happen and as as bog i'm not using the scientific terms you're not no i know which is strange actually uh believe it or not not a scientist but uh you, you talk about um some of the climate implications around I, i'm just going to call it bogs like you know sort of that peat mossy bog like where the moose love to live where we can't and um, and some of the climate implications of that thawing, and mm. as that as these mass areas thaw, the release of carbon is actually quite a significant uh, quite a significant story that maybe we'll get to some other day. Uh, Shalane is looking back. She goes, "Oh, Billy Baldwin." People are you know now people are looking at backdraft. You actually probably you're going to see on Netflix if it's on there probably today hundreds if not thousands of hits on backdraft it's as people the real talk bump as people revisit. <laughs> The real talk bump. I love it. Uh, yeah, the people, people now people are just chiming in. These are just anecdotal or these are just observations. Like Linda Ray says, seriously, you want to know, like talking about fighting fires, watching a water bomber pick up lake water is spectacular. Mm. Absolutely right. The choppers coming in there too. Amazing. Lisa says, my boyfriend was a wildland firefighter for a couple of years. The stories are just absolutely incredible. James says, one of his friends has been a, a wildland firefighter, a year-round bike courier, and an EMS. James says, but the part that amazes all of us, he's vegan. <laughs> what? <laughs> I feel like that tracks. I feel like that tracks. Wildland firefighters, vegan, that seems to fit a little bit. I mean, I feel like wildland firefighters could also be the guys that like eat meat raw off the bone too. the guys and gals. Let me clarify. But like, yeah, ah, I, ah, 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 you know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't be surprised either way. Those year round bike couriers. That's that is not my calling. You got to be fierce to be fierce able to- and fit. And I think it depends what community you're in. I love the like the bike couriers. Um, I love them when they don't do it to me. But the ones you see like in the movies on New York City when like a cab cuts them off, they're like, hey, they like slap the fender of the cab as they like maneuver their way through the road. And yeah, now we're going to start a big thing on bike couriers, bikers, you know, cyclists versus cars. Has that ever been a divisive conversation before? I'm not no, sure. I think that would be new ground for us to cover. Yeah. Deborah says she'd just like to see if that family of four wildland firefighters would compete to blow out birthday cake candles. Yeah, maybe they'd approach have, it in an entirely you, different way. Have you started? I mean, for our birthdays now, we're doing the, the, the clapping where you have to like clap over top of the candles. What, what's the purpose of that? It actually snuffs out the candles because we're not we're not blowing your saliva all over the cake. Yeah. Since COVID, we're, do, we're doing this. Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. Is, is the tongue important for that, Sarah? Vital. Vital. Yeah, okay. It's like Just Michael, making sure. Michael Jordan kind of a oh, while you concentrate. There you have it. Yeah, the newest real talk gif right there. <laughs> uh, Apologies. Uh, Mark says you never have to ask any guy over 40 if he's ever seen Backdraft. Uh, so, <laughs> I don't know. Um, this feels like a perfect time to, I mean, we're talking about getting outdoors and we're talking, it was interesting to hear Mark talk, talking about what Jasper's done really well uh, in the national park with regards to mitigation and, and wildfire management and those types of things every Wednesday. Uh, and we chose this day on purpose because I love it. Midweek, we get to go to the mountains and in partnership with our friends at tourism Jasper, every Wednesday, we bring you my Jasper memories. And today we're focusing on wildlife so other than the mountains itself i mean the mountains themselves are the star of the show right 
But Jasper's probably, other than the mountains, Jasper's probably most famous for its wildlife. And if you've been there, if you've had the, the almost spiritual experience of, of a sighting like this, you know. Part of the reason Jasper's declared a UNESCO World Heritage Site is because of the abundant fauna that call the National Park home. Moose, to me, I, if, if you're an alien from another planet and you come to planet Earth, the moose is the one that's going to blow your mind. I mean, maybe the octopus. Let's not get off on that tangent again. Octopus population is actually quite limited in Jasper National Park. But the moose, on the other hand, that to me, that to me is the coolest looking animal on planet Earth. I don't know. I'm a moose guy. Uh, For every human resident in the National Park, did you know there are approximately 1.3 large animals? 1.3. So more animals than people in the National Park. And, And while there's obviously always the possibility of spotting an elk or a bear on your own, Oh my gosh. Is there any site like that? Two cubs and mama? Don't get too close. But absolutely amazing opportunity there. You can also go on these professional wildlife watching tours, which is super cool. Um, It's important, obviously, to keep the wild animals wild. I always want to point this out. Don't try to feed them. Don't try to get your wide angle lens right up to an elk in the middle of the rut to get the most spectacular profile shot for your Facebook account. Maintain distance at all times. And keep in mind, the best time to see wildlife, spring and fall at dusk and dawn. You can learn more about these wildlife tours by checking out the link that we bring you every week, jasper.travel slash real talk. It's also a great destination. If you go check that out online, jasper.travel slash real talk, you can watch all of our past episodes, which is great. I'm sharing my screen right now so you can see it. Every week you've been sharing with us your Jasper memories. And it's honestly, we get so excited every Wednesday because we know that they're going to start coming in from from audience members like this one from Travis. Travis wrote us an email. He said, I have to say thank you for this feature every Wednesday for my Jasper memories. It transports me to Jasper every single time, a place that captures more and more of my heart whenever I visit. He says, so last week, he's sharing this with us. He says, last week, my wife and I made our annual week-long pilgrimage to Jasper National Park. It just so happened to be one of the hottest weeks on record. Get this, Travis trying to get his email read for sure. He says, it felt like we were in a Friesen Brothers convection oven. Smart guy. Smart guy, this Travis. He says, my ass was baking like a cinnamon bun. Okay, I don't know. Uh, That might have been a bit too far. That was maybe a bit too far. (laughs) I guess I could have edited that out, but we keep it real on Real Talk. Now everybody's picturing Travis's. Anyway. Swass. He says, the relentless heat forced us to change up the routine a bit, so it ended up being a total blessing. He says, we were hitting the trails at like 6 in the morning. Absolutely amazing. My wife and I took a lovely mini hike to Beaver Lake one morning. Didn't run into a single other person until we returned to the trail. And what a special experience to be on the trail with nobody but your wife, songbirds, and hoary marmots whistling in the distance. He says, Mount Edith Cavell might just be my favorite area on the planet. And it was an absolute delight to pull in to that parking lot as we reached the main viewpoint on the path of the glacier trail edith and angel glacier greeted us with a thunderous avalanche as we watched in awe i'm getting chills reading this he says talk about a humbling experience and he says and as we were in jasper we were able to keep up with real talk thank you on vacation travis and his wife were tuning in he says that's when you announced the photo contest for july and he says i know we had to try our hands at one of the historic photos Sam, this is the one. I mean, this is amazing. This at Moline Canyon. He says, so another 6 a.m. wake up call was worth it. 
check this out. That's their recreation. The framing is bang on. Like if you go back and forth between that archive photo and Travis's photo, how amazing is that? I love that he dragged the shutter underneath and got the nice blurred waterfall. Just Isn't that so cool? wispy and cool. So yeah. cool. He says, uh, he says, you know what? Last Thanksgiving, I took an extended drive down the snaring road and discovered the Moberly Homestead, the only area that's been restored and preserved. It's incredible. It's a must stop. I can only imagine what it would have been like to live off these lands 100 years ago. I've been reflecting on that experience since last fall. He says it is my hope and plan to honor and respect these special places as much as the people that came before me. That from Travis. Wow. Thank you for sharing the stories. I literally have chills. Thank you for sharing your photos. Let me turn you back here for just a second to jasper.travel slash real talk. That photo contest he's talking about, check this out. So last week we launched it. We launched it on June 30th. You just click here on learn more and then it's going to take you to this photo contest. Snaps from the past. Four iconic Jasper locations. They want you to recreate these photos. One from Moline Canyon. Might be tough to beat Travis's. Doesn't mean you shouldn't try. There's a beautiful one at Moline Lake. Love that place. Black Beauvoir at the legendary Fairmont Jasper Park Lodge. And of course, this one here at the Jasper train station. All the details again at jasper.travel slash real talk. It's always tough to get back to business after we've like taken ourselves mentally to Jasper, isn't it? I just, I still... I, I love like I'm still stuck on I'm a bit of a moose man. I'm a bit of a moose man. Yeah. Well, you, sh- ju- you just said that that's who you were. You're you're yeah. you're a moose guy. I'm a moose guy. Now I'm thinking of Bullwinkles and it's just getting all sidetracked. <laughs> oh, that was a great great restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> was it a restaurant? Was it more of sort of like an indoor amusement park that served pizza? I think it's You know what? I don't actually remember the food at all. Yeah, that's kind of the point. Yeah. They had the uh this is like a really niche reference. Were Bullwinkles across Canada? I don't know. I think it might have just been in Edmonton. Well, it was in Calgary too, oh, for okay. sure. There you go. Yeah, listeners down in Calgary will remember on McLeod Trail that you know what was then Shanks Sports Bar was Bullwinkles before then. I would, I would like a, a family night at Bullwinkles. Are you kidding me? I would like sequester myself in the Star Wars video game with just a fistful of tokens. And, whew, See, I never got to got to play the games. Why is that? We just got to go and enjoy being there. Is that what your parents told you? <laughs> like, it was just like K-Days. Was it like an anti- was it, an, was it an anti- uh, it, Did you grow up in a family that was like no no gaming, no video games? No, that, that wasn't it at all. It oh, was okay. that there were four kids. Yeah. Whole bunch of rugrats. Yes. And, um, Hands full. And one salary. And so- Oh, yes. So we always got to go and like at the movies, I, like- God bless my parents. Like we never got to have go to the concession. Like you just you got your tickets, yeah, and you went into the. That was the treat. The movie was the treat. Which is the it is a treat. Yeah, movie night tonight. Like if you're going now, it's like a hundred dollars for two people to go to the movies. It's mm. wild. Uh, I know I'm not saying anything profound here, but I just um, I was always if the guy you that, if you're doing like the if popcorn, you're doing the full thing, yeah. You know, and um, and, uh, you know, you get to the point where so they used to say, okay, yeah, like our large popcorn is whatever it is, like eleven dollars. It's obscene, but you could refill them if you get the largest. Right. So if you get the large pop and the large popcorn, you'd get free refills. So I'd be like, I am getting my money's worth. And this is what I'm about to divulge. What I'm about to share is totally disgusting. 
But I would be we'd get there for the previews and I'd pretty much be almost uh, I'd try to time it. So I wouldn't necessarily crush the entire large bag of popcorn before the end of the previews, because the trick is you've got to leave some time in the previews. You don't leave to get your refill when the movie's starting. Oh, heck no. So you have to you sort of have to gauge. So you're like on the third preview. You're like, now's probably the time to go. And then you head back, you get your pop and your popcorn topped up. And then now you're, you're good for the movie. Right. And you've only taken in probably about like forty six hundred calories or so. So it's not you know, it's like it's not the worst. And then they eliminated the free refills. And that was when they lost me. They didn't lose me at the eleven dollar pop or the eleven dollar popcorn. They lost me at no more free refills. Am I the only one here that's brought the bag back at a subsequent movie and gotten a fresh popcorn? Oh, I mean, that's theft. I mean, that that's just you know. you're, you're Cineplex. You're <laughs> yes. Like, you're a terrible person, Sam. Sam, I can't believe Samuel Brooks. Oh, my goodness. My parents, was back in the day, legendary performances as well. I remember this. These are some of my favorite memories. Do you remember the first memory, uh, the first movie that you ever went to uh, in a I, theater? I remember going to see The Lion King with my granddad, and I don't know if that was the absolute first, but it's a very dominant memory. The Lion King. Yeah. yeah. How about you? Do you remember? Teenage Mutant Ninja Whoa. Turtles. I held a girl's hand for the first time at Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles at West Edmonton Mall on a band trip up from Calgary. Ooh. Big moment. Yeah, Melissa Miller, you know what's <laughs> up, girl. I even talk to her anymore. I don't know what she's up to. Maybe she's a fan of Real Talk. If so, holla. We'll send you a coffee mug. Um, but yeah, no. Fox and the Hound was my first one ever. Aww. Well, ah. When's the last time you watched Fox and the Hound? I was like, hey, Wyatt. Wyatt's five, our son. This is like a year ago. I go, I was about your age, little fella. I don't talk to him like that. Little but gaffer. Hey, little fella. Uh, when I when I went to my first movie and it was the Fox and the Hound and I was like, let's watch the Fox and the Hound together. And uh, it's horrible. Oh, no. It is horrible. Something bad happens. Right? Lots of bad things happen. <laughs> but the, the the like the villain in the movie is a terrible person. Kids these days would never be able to handle a movie like that. Are they as terrible as Sam Brooks, who takes back popcorn? <laughs> oh, Sam's going to have to. I can't comment here. Sam's going to have to defend himself here. This is. Ter- I, I feel an unscientific, unofficial Twitter poll coming on. Uh, let, let's get serious for a second. People are starting to share like their their favorite. Yeah. Y-Trium says, yeah, Fox and the Hound is, is pure terror. Uh, Kaylin's first movie in a theater was Piglet's big movie. And she says, I cried so much because Piglet lost her family. We had to leave the theater. Uh, yeah. Yeah, some random guy is really cracking on me today. It's like, really cracking on me. Are you the type of guy that invites yourself to people's parties? Don't be that guy. What are you doing flirting with your exes and coffee mugs? Some random guy, you know, at least sign your name. Um, I mean, seriously, shot after shot after sign your name. Have you rewatched? I mean, I loved The Little Mermaid when I was a kid. It's quite a, Yes. It's uh, when you rewatch it, there's a yeah. lot of problematic things in there. Yes, there are. Oh, boy. There are. You know, what you could do is what was that uh, mystery science theater? You know, that show where they have you guys seen this? I, I can tell none of you have seen this, which it gets me so excited. <laughs> it's like when I told everybody about the nature is metal Instagram page. Yeah. And now and now I can see from the likes when I sign on that a whole bunch of you are on nature is metal. I feel like I'm about to share. So mystery science theater, they would watch old movies, but the camera would be set up with them in the foreground talking about the movie. Mm. Yeah, it's a cool idea. We could do like a mystery science theater about children's films that no longer cut the mustard. 
Um, Jake Owen on our live chat suggests that the real talk poll is, is Sam evil? Is Sam, <laughs> is Sam evil? Sam's kind of like, Sam didn't see today's show going in this direction, <laughs> nor did I. Nor did I, Sam. Yeah. I was I, I I didn't forecast people piling on for for your popcorn habits. I maintain that I can cost Cineplex an extra fifty cents and it doesn't matter. I don't even think it would be fifty cents. No, it's probably five. It's yeah. like probably five cents. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, if you True. think about it, I mean that's that's the thing is is the popcorn and the pop is like pops like two cents for a, anyway. I digress. I know people are pissed off right now. Uh, If you've been paying attention in the province of Alberta, uh, Alberta's finance minister has said that uh, they're looking to roll back nurses salaries by about three percent. And depending on who you talk to, those that are speaking, this announcement was just kind of made, I would say, quietly, but it wasn't that quiet once it hit the news. Once it hit social media, people are saying it might be closer to five percent with some of the other rollbacks that have been proposed. And let's put it this way. The Alberta government says that, you know, the fiscal reality right now demands that nurses' salaries need to fall into line with where they are across the rest of the country, and that means a pay cut right now. We'll be talking about this in days to come, for sure. Uh, I'm sure that we'll hear from those of you that want to talk about the budget side and tough decisions, and I think that there's a valid conversation to be had there. And we're going to talk to those of you that are nurses or married to nurses or being raised by nurses or raised a now nurse, and you're going to talk about how hard they've worked through the pandemic, the service they've provided, and and probably the demoralizing impact of a labor dispute or what's being described by the UNA as bad faith bargaining. We got a letter here from Tyler to talk at RyanJesperson.com. Uh, 5.45 this morning, Tyler wrote this in. I don't know if he was just off shift. He's an RN, uh, or maybe he's tossing and turning over this which is is very likely but he wrote you know he said uh he actually wrote uh to the minister but he cc'd us as we ask you to do to talk at ryanjesperson.com he says i want to clarify your government's position here minister you know you want a three percent rollback on nurse salaries plus changes in shift differential and lump sum payments and things like this so it works out to about five percent i see that you know your government promised to be essentially you know fiscal hawks when you were first elected so let's Let's take a look back. He says there have been corporate tax cuts that did not stimulate the economy. I mean, in Canada, took their money and ran to Denver. A uh, billion and a half dollars pissed away on Keystone XL with hopes of maybe suing the Americans. Good luck. Uh, he says, number three, investing more money, buying into this refinery in Strathcona County. That's a money pit. And number four, forfeiting our water future as a resource, allowing coal mining to still continue. He says, pausing does not equate stopping. He says, this could lead ultimately to a scarcity of an already scarce resource traded for minimal financial gain. Our water Please, Minister, could you explain to me how your government's done a stellar job on these financial aspects? Can you really defend the position? Tyler says, no, I'd like to clarify. It's like you have to say this. People say this. People have to write this in emails. He says, I'm no fan of Justin Trudeau. But your leader, Jason Kenney, described him, the prime minister, as having the political depth of a finger bowl. If that was an accurate analogy, then then what does that say about your government's record? You can't blame the feds for Alberta's abysmal performance. This was self-induced damage. When the NDP and conservative bases find common ground, we've got an issue, says Tyler, a registered nurse. He says, apparently, your reelection strategy is based on attacking the social safety net, healthcare, doctors, nurses, and this during the worst healthcare crisis in the past century. You've unilaterally torn up the physician's master contract. You've caused damage to the public health system. 
You've contributed directly to the loss of physicians in rural Alberta, says Tyler, a healthcare worker I'd advise against getting sick in Rocky Mountain House, Lacklebish, or Fairview. He says the right and honorable health minister verbally accosted a physician in Calgary. He says, as a matter of fact, I wonder if I should be worried now that he may wind up on my doorstep. And now you're going after my salary because I make too much, says the finance minister. He says, I'd argue that you guys are overpaid. You know, benefits aren't taxed, gold-plated pensions, base salary over 120 grand a year. That's the highest in the nation. Alberta MLAs earn more than anywhere else. Maybe we should start with your salary. The premier would point out they did take a 5% pay cut. Making it in line with the national average. And then we can talk about mine, says Tyler, but that'll never happen. He knows. Tyler says, I'm going to be honest. As I sign off, I was apathetic at one point. But your silence on important issues like Aloha Gate, COVID-19, has pushed me into action. Says maybe another day I'll get into the education curriculum and this government's record when it comes to indigenous communities. Regards, Tyler and RN. Appreciate that. We also got an email. This this is a subject line that that jumped out. Uh, our inbox obviously can be pretty full. This one, emergency medical services in crisis. Uh, and this is from an audience member that's requested anonymity. We verified the source. Says, I'm, I'm writing uh, to you, Ryan, out of an extreme level of concern. I've been a listener, a subscriber from day one to the Real Talk podcast. I trust what you're creating. I'm a paramedic firefighter. Uh, with the department in a suburb of Edmonton. I've been a firefighter and a paramedic for more than 20 years. For nearly a decade, Alberta Health Services has contracted us to staff and run four ambulances to cover both our own communities and any other areas that they would deem to be in need. We do many calls and so-called redeploys where an ambulance gets moved to an urban station before a 911 call is, is received. It says we do many of these into the city of Edmonton. Our operational tempo has greatly increased and morale and mental health have eroded beyond description. I serve with pride alongside my AHS employed paramedic brothers and sisters. I have seen their suffering outpace ours. This is a paramedic firefighter talking about paramedics. Alberta Health Services has operated its ground ambulance staffing at very low levels and has been leaning on surrounding contracted units to fill service gaps. This has been happening for years. In my opinion, says this audience member, this is placing the public in jeopardy and it's soured the working environment for paramedics. Many of my city based paramedic colleagues have taken stress leave or are using sick time to achieve balance. Many refuse to come to work when called in for overtime in spite of the allure of extra pay. It's gotten to a point where Alberta Health Services cannot provide a minimum service level. Starting July 1st, my fire-based coworkers and I started getting paged to work overtime night shifts on ambulances, filling in for a lack of ambulances in the city of Edmonton, a city of a million people. This was a bizarre request for us. And we soon learned that AHS had requested fire departments surrounding Edmonton to supply additional ambulances to the metro area. We were asked for two of them. The request for additional units continued on the nights of July 2nd and July 3rd. So this is just this past week. 
AHS put out a statement, a public statement. The call volume was high and they had deployed additional staff and, and, and trucks, but obviously felt short of any admission that they could not adequately or successfully staff their own vehicles. Management of healthcare in the province has been poor for decades, says this paramedic firefighter. You'll remember former health minister, former mayor of Edmonton, Stephen Mandel, referred to EMS as the thorn in his side. Paramedics are overworked and disrespected, but they never fail to deliver. Albertans must ask themselves how poorly EMS is being run if employees refuse to come to work in spite of the enticement of more than $1,000 per shift. Keep in mind, you're talking July 1st. You're talking probably triple time. Says it can be hard to look past that dollar amount. If it's night shift, it would be triple time. It can be hard to look past that dollar amount. So I plead that people think about how poor the working conditions are for medics to turn down that type of pay. Patients often have no understanding that the medics responding to their calls are, in fact, firefighter paramedics responding on ambulances based outside the city. This crisis cannot easily be fixed. It is not a function of COVID-19, and it is not a function of an historic heat wave. Those are simply straws that have broken our weary backs. Please find a way to speak about this crisis. I cannot speak out publicly for fear of losing my job. Thank you for the real talk. That from a paramedic firefighter in a suburb of Edmonton. That is called sounding the alarm. Is it... When we hear that, is that uh, a case for privatization? Ooh. Well... I don't know if you know what you've walked into here. I know exactly what I've walked into. Because I'm not because I'm not adverse at all to conversations around different methods of healthcare delivery, including some privatization in healthcare, which is what a lot of people that are typically in my corner really pisses them off. When it comes to ambulances, I don't know what would the argument be. Do you think? Well, I'm I'm not in favor of it. I'm just saying this showing that there is like we're beyond capacity, showing that it's that. Or it's perceived that we're beyond capacity because of the way that it's being run, then feeds into the argument that privatization makes sense. I'm not saying that it's, um, it. Yeah, I, I'm just I'm concerned about what this, how this could be perceived, <laughs> and then an argument for privatization. As I know that there are people in uh, in places of power that definitely want to see privatization because they have financial interest there yeah, yeah of course yeah of course colette says my paramedic son was just talking about this the other day it is a crisis hmm. chelsea says if working conditions continue to deteriorate won't they end up having to pay more to get healthcare workers to come here which is an interesting point you can keep the comments coming. Troy says, I think the entire plan is to decimate public health care and then scream that public health care is not working and yeah. then continue to privatize it. Yeah. Right. Mark says it doesn't matter what nurses get paid in other provinces because nurses will just leave the profession to make more money in the private sector in Alberta. Yeah. Uh, My question is, hey, we can afford to have fireworks for all of Stampede. And oh, your your face, you're not liking me. Well, I just think it's a. I, Carrie, finish your point. I, I don't mean to. 
That was an, that was an involuntary reaction. The, it wasn't caught on camera, so you're good. <laughs> yeah. I just got to see your face being like, <laughs> I'll recreate oh, it. Re- really, Hoyles? I don't know. I just, it ticks me right Hang off. on a second. What's, what's your argument? What's your argument? Well, I'm just like, how much money? That the Calgary Stampede should cancel its fireworks to, to donate to pay for ambulances? No, the fact that fireworks are going to be shot off in Edmonton for 10 days. Yeah, that's and other weird. And other cities across Alberta for 10 days when... Why? Let's get into this in just a second. Right now, <laughs> let's remind people... <laughs> I'm going to give you... Some, I want to take a second here. I want to remind people... That if you're looking for a place to get out into the great outdoors and watch fireworks, there's no better really? place. Yeah. Just, really? Just wait. There's no better place. There's no better experience than watching fireworks laying on your back in the bed of a brand new Dodge Ram 1500. Just staring up at the night sky as this marvel of chemical technology, the collision of ad- I don't even know how fireworks work. You're doing well. Keep going. Thanks. I was doing all right. I yeah. started I started painting myself into a corner. The key of public commentary is knowing when to get yourself back out. And so what I'll do is return to the messaging that there are no dealerships, Dodge or otherwise, in the province of Alberta with a better selection than Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. They share their inventories, their shared ownership, which means that the truck you're looking for, there's a very good chance they have it. And if not, they'll track it down for you. You can check out their inventories online. You can link to the dealerships just under the sponsors tab at ryanjesperson.com. And keep in mind, also Alberta's best selection on that trusted brand since 1941, the brand I love, Jeep at Sherwood and St. Albert Dodge. Want to remind you that Trash Talk's coming up on Friday. If you got something you want to get off your chest, I'm saving some of these nurses. We were going to do like we could do an hour on nursing emails today, but I was like, I'm putting a few in the bank for trash talk because there's some good ones. But if there's something totally unrelated to politics or news, something that's just driving you absolutely nuts, you know, maybe your neighbor's using their leaf blower at 6.30 in the morning, we'd love to hear from you to talk at ryanjesperson.com. Local Waste has been talking trash for more than a quarter century. They're getting people out of bad contracts with some of their competitors. As we speak, it's one of the services they provide because they want to fight for your business. Get Mikkel, Lauren, and Chris a call today. You'll find all the details at localwaste.ca. And a shout out to the team at Westworld Computers. I was chatting with Daryl just the other day. On the service side, they're booking appointments online at westworld.ca. It's also where they're shipping from. They've got the new lineup in of the MacBooks, which I know. Have you seen these colors? Let me show you this. I was checking these out there. I was, you know, we've, we've got our... The worst thing you can do when you have a computer that you love is take a look at the new ones on the market because now all of a sudden I'm looking at mine going, is it maybe time for an upgrade? Look at these iMacs. Love these. The new Apple lineup. They've got it all at westworld.ca and they'll ship to you. Make sure you tell them that Real Talk sent you. Does that remind you of the computer that you had when you were a kid? The one that was see-through? Like now that they have those bright colors back? Okay, can I confess something to the both of you? I've been undergoing, I've been doing this purge at home and I've been trying to get rid of some things and I have this orange iMac, like the original iMac yeah. and I can't, and Sam was talking you about didn't how get rid of we it, could, ma- well, you're we saying that we could maybe turn it into a fish tank or something like that. Yeah. You know what I was also thinking is what we could do is, or maybe this was your idea, I might be stealing this from you, but the idea of putting an iPad inside it Oh, so, yeah. Turn it into like a studio monitor. So it could be us. like a studio monitor, but yeah. it's like the old school iMac. And so I, I was finally like, this has got to go. This has got to go from the house. I bought it in like 98. So it's, you know, it's it's seen some years. It hasn't been plugged in in a long time. And 
Um, I'm now in the in-between where I'm afraid to bring it into the studio because where are we going to put it? So I'm now just driving around with it in my car. <laughs> this is this is some insight into how my mind works. Like, I'm glad that the clutter's gone at home and the clutter's not here in the studio, but there is literally a 23-year-old iMac not banging around, but like it's on the floor of my car. <laughs> to be fair, I do this with bags of like clothes for donations. Like yeah. they seem to make it from the bedroom into the trunk and, and then stay there for four months. For four months. Yeah. And then when you need your trunk, then you'll go and donate the clothes. Right. Or take it out and put it on the floor in the garage. Yes. And there. It exactly. Until your next garage party, in which case now it goes back into the trunk of the car. This is one of the nice things about having a big vintage car with, you know, a trunk that can hold like, you know, eight golf bags is it, it can hold a lot of stuff as temporary storage. Now, if you're looking for storage that's not so temporary, I just see an opening. So I'm going to take it. Don't forget that the team at Alta Moving and Storage is a family owned business. I know we just did these, but it was just it was there on a silver platter. And so we want to remind you that at altastorage.ca, you can check in with them right now. They're all about short and long term solutions. It's a family owned business and they've they've been doing a ton of work lately because, of course, it's moving season. They're Edmonton's number one portable storage and moving service. I like the hybrid, this moving storage marriage that you know, these pod style moving containers. It takes the stress out of the move, right? You move at your own pace. They drop them off when you want them. They pick them up when you want them. And of course, it takes all the stress out of moving. Check this out at altastorage.ca. You can sign up to get a free quote in minutes. They've got solutions for moving and storage, and they want to hear from you. You make sure you let them know that Real Talk sent you to Alta Moving and Storage. So, Hoyles, what's the deal here? I've been I've been paying uh, like sort of ish attention to the thing about the fireworks, the Stampede fireworks. I mean, this yeah. is a conversation that our friends tuning in from Manitoba and Ontario and Utah and Costa Rica probably don't give a rip about, but it's it's kind of becoming a bit of a the Stampede. Can I just say is being politicized and weaponized right now, which is actually kind of driving me nuts. Mm. But I digress. Maybe more on that in just a minute. But what's the deal with the fireworks? So they're going to be they're going to be going off in communities all across the province. So Calgary is, uh, yeah, it's going to be Edmonton, Red Deer, and Lethbridge. And it will be synchronized to the same musical soundtrack over the Stampede Park. Okay. So, um, and it will be, I just want to make sure, I, I saw it being every night just like it is. And like, what's the point? Like, why, is, why, are, why are communities across the province privy to, I mean, I'm not going to complain about a fireworks show, but it, it seems a little bit, seems a little strange, doesn't it? Seems a little off. Doesn't it? I, I, I just feel like Stampede is being shoved down my throat. Yeah. 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 And yeah. it's just like I I have chosen, like if I wanted to go to Stampede, I could. And if I don't want to, I don't need to. Why does it need to be brought to my door? And But it's going to turn into the like real Alberta thing, right? Oh, like, are, are you going to Stampede this year? No, thanks. Oh, I, uh, oh, why aren't you a... Uh, Oh, you're not a real Alberta. Yeah. Why, why don't you support Alberta? Why don't you support what it, it's turning into this weird thing? Um, what drives me nuts is politicians that like put it this way. I've seen Jason Kenny in person wearing an Oilers and a Flames jersey, um, you know, in the same year. Mm. Th- these are the types of things that politicians will do. So they'll throw on the white cowboy hat or they'll drive yeah. the blue truck. I love the report. People are always journalists are posting. Jason Kenny drives his blue truck. That's not his 
blue truck. Everybody, it's called a prop. This is called a photo op. And so they're turning, you know, this Jason Kenney, obviously the conservatives, United Conservatives have been bleeding support in Southern mm. Alberta and in rural areas. And I think they're doing everything they can to get it back. Right. I mean, you know, the, the greatest outdoor show on earth. I mean, this is the type of thing where it's never been political. No. The Calgary Stampede has never been political. It's been controversial before, which is perfectly fine. And I've got all day for those conversations about chuck wagons and the ethics of rodeo and those types of things. I've gone on the record. I've always been a big fan. I mean, I, I love the rodeo. I grew up going to the rodeo. I understand why some people think the rodeo is horrendous. I understand why it pisses some people off. To me, the Rangeland Derby, the final night of the Rangeland Derby, you know, that that, that the dash for cash, the $50,000 check. I mean, you know, all those Buddy Benzmiller and Kelly Sutherland and Jason Glass and I mean all the great uh, Chuck wagon drivers I mean this has been a, a festival a celebratory Atmosphere in Calgary for more than a century But the the, the politicization Of it right now is, is kind of driving me nuts What's fascinating to see Is that the Alberta NDP are now Talking about their stampede road tour Or whatever they're calling it And you kind of get the sense That the NDP has said well we Believe that one of the big battlegrounds They're going to have to win or they're going to have to fight Strongly on is Calgary Right. Here's the deal. Typically, and I'm going to be general and lazy here because this is not entirely accurate, but generally speaking, conservatives have won Calgary and rural areas and the NDP has won Edmonton. That's kind of how it goes. If you're lazy uh, when it comes to political commentary, or how elections go. Now, when the NDP won in 2015, it was because they won in Calgary and because they won in rural areas. Uh, they, they held strong in Edmonton. So Calgary is going to be a big battleground. And I think that with Jason Kenney and, and his team of Twitter warriors, like his, his issues managers here, really trying to sort of, I think, co-opt or, or appropriate the Calgary Stampede and turn it political, turn it into a political statement. In other words, if you're at the Calgary Stampede, you're supporting the United Conservatives or you support the premier or you, you endorse the best summer ever or whatever. They're trying to turn it into that. And so I think the Alberta NDP is trying to avoid being painted as the party that is not in support of the Calgary Stampede. So now Rachel Notley and the Alberta NDP, you can check out their messaging, are talking about their own Stampede tour. And they're risking some of their own base, I think, by doing it. But I think it's also an olive branch to people in particular, people with, can I say, Western roots, Western traditions, people with whom support of the stampede would resonate, people who it would be important to them. It's clearly not important to you, which is perfectly fine, but important to you would maybe be another issue where you would expect a politician that's, yeah. that's fighting for your vote to stand in support. And, and so now you have, and then the premier tweeting yesterday now oh it's good to see the alberta ndp finally drop their opposition to the calgary stampede what the fuck is going on right now like what are you talking about talk leave about the, politi politicizing leave the, the stampede leave the calgary stampede out of this mm -hmm. right i don't i don't I, it, it, it's driving me crazy and i wish more people would push back and i feel like the stampede board too on this one yeah. is complicit people are like there were these rumors going around when jason kenny announced the stampede would be a go and people were saying you know these insiders were saying that oh that's that's news to the stampede board and they're going to be upset about this because because it's it's you know going to paint them in a light where they didn't know and this and now it's being politicized and the stampede doesn't want anything to do with this. And then the next day, scaffolding was going up for the Nashville North tent. And so we checked in with somebody in the business of event rentals and said, how, far, how reasonable would it be that if an announcement was made yesterday that today we could have crews and semi-trucks here putting up a big Quonset? And they said, that's, they, said they would have known for weeks. Mm. They would have known for weeks that was going to happen, most likely. Right. So 
you know, I'm curious to know where people are landing on this. If if I have any, uh, you know, I would say if, if, if I'm involved with the Calgary Stampede, I mean, you, you, you're probably happy with the marketing efforts. Everybody, I think, is in their own context. And I guess, you know, we'll be checking it with Crystal Mundy here in just a second here, the founder of Safer Shopping Network, to talk about economic recovery and to talk about getting back to, quote unquote, normal representative events would be things like the Calgary Stampede or Folk Fest or a children's festival or getting birthday parties back or being able to have the family around the Thanksgiving table, whatever it is for you. And so people are cheering, I think, for these things to return. But people are at different stages of, of what that looks like and what prudent approach looks like and how people feel safe. And to me right now, leveraging these big events as some sort of a political uh, flag plant. Um, I don't know. I'm I'm uh, I think I'm just going to leave it at it's driving me nuts. And and I and I don't appreciate it. Mm. And and I and like to see events politicized. Uh, it, it's just to me, it's really unfortunate because it's actually going to create divisive type uh, scenarios, I think, between individuals. Right. And I think long term, it might be effective because of, you know, that certain events were canceled last year and now they're moving forward this year. So maybe it it get, it, it helps them kind of recoup and and earn some money this year. But long term, what is the legacy of this politicization? I I worry because it's it will it will have lasting effects. Steven says the Stampede brand is taking a hit. It's going to trickle down to businesses, to volunteers if left unchecked. I don't know. Nadine says, I, I do think the NDP is making inroads with the Calgary crowd. White Room says at least the NDP is doing events outside, doing distancing and masking at their events. Sure. Wigwith says we've got no money for nurses, but when Stampede rolls through, look out. Right. Lalazaz says all these added prizes in the in the lotto vax, that vaccine lottery where all stampede passes. What the hell? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's no surprise. Like the prizes are like WestJet trips and stampede passes. I mean, these are all the and again, like, let me be clear, because, you know, these these spin doctors, right, they'll try to twist this. You know, Jesperson taking shots at WestJet, the great Canadian employer taking shots at the Calgary stampede. Right. Don't even try it. Don't even try it. Support WestJet. Fly WestJet whenever I can. Have friends that work for WestJet. WestJet is a great Western Canadian success story. Okay? And the same thing with the Calgary Stampede. Love it or hate it, that's fine. That's your prerogative. Can be different than mine. I'm a huge fan of the Calgary Stampede. I've missed probably four of them in my entire life. This one feels different, and it feels weird. It's, 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 it, the, the, the Premier's pancake breakfast is, is, is a thing. That's fine. The parade marshal, sometimes a politician, rarely, but that's fine. Political parties are always there at the stampede. That's part of it. That's part of, of, of what they do and how they operate. There's nothing new there, and that's perfectly fine. But it's being weaponized right now, and it's a different vibe. And it's just, it's, it's kind of a continuing, you know what word I want to use? It's a continuing pollution of a brand it's a pollution of a tradition from a premier that's come in and, and done more than his fair share of polluting that's my take on it the team at the dairy queens of northwest edmonton and sherwood park want to remind you that you can get two when I mean, we're talking about five bucks 
You can go get two burgers for five bucks at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park right now. Talk about stretching your dollar. Talk about bang for buck. These are the Dairy Queens at Palisades de Mayo, Newcastle, Westmount, Y Gardens, and Baseline Road. And while you're there, we encourage you to grab something cold as well. Tis the season after all. This is a chance for me to toss in a shameless plug of our question of the week. This presented by our friends at Y Station. If you look at our question of the week right now, you find it at ryanjesperson.com. It touches on that record-breaking heat wave that swept across BC, Alberta, and Saskatchewan. And there's some Dairy Queen content in there. As a matter of fact, we're polling you on what your Dairy Queen go-to is. You'll find them all. The Dilly Bars, the Buster Bars, the Blizzards, the Treatsa Pizzas, and so much more at the Dairy Queens of Northwest Edmonton and Sherwood Park. Also wanted to remind you, if you've got a hunger, if you're looking after the family this week, and that includes plans to grill, you're going to want to make your way to a Friesen Brothers. There's 16 locations across the province of Alberta, including that beautiful, relatively new store, just a couple of months old now, in South Edmonton. They've got BC cherries at all 16 locations, unless they've sold out by the time you got there, because these are wildly popular. Every time when they bring these in, they know they're going to see a strong response from loyal Friesen Brothers customers who know that they're getting the best produce, the best protein, and more supporting local producers at Friesen Brothers for more than 65 years, Alberta-grown and Alberta-owned. Now, we were to talk to Emily Atkin today. She's an environmental reporter. She's the founder of that uh, environmental newsletter called Heated, and she hosts a podcast of the same name. Uh, We had told you she was just on CNN, and and obviously her morning has worked out in a way where she's asked us to reschedule. So we're going to be talking to Emily Atkin about this Exxon admission, these lobbyists representing Exxon, and we'll talk about British Petroleum as well, BP. Uh, Emily's going to join us, and we'll get into that tomorrow. Right now, a great opportunity to check in with Crystal Mundy. Crystal's the founder of the Safer Shopping Network. All right. She's she's currently earning her doctorate or PhD in clinical psychology, completing her master's in psychological science. And she's been joining AHS via the Edmonton Consortium uh, for a pre-doctoral residency in September 2021. Really fascinating area of study here, Crystal. Thanks for making time for us and welcome to Real Talk. Of course. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you bet. This is it's the time where we're, we're sitting here talking, whether you're talking about the Calgary Stampede or whether you're talking about shopping or restaurants back open or people making summer plans as 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 provinces, territories and I suppose even nations begin to reopen. We must acknowledge that not every single human being is on the same pace when it comes Absolutely. to what they're ready for. Absolutely. And and. I'll even jump in right away by saying ready is even somewhat of a misnomer, I would say, because a lot of individuals are dealing with actual health concerns in terms of these are long-term concerns. This isn't going away for them necessarily in the next six months, 12 months, and this is something they have to deal with long-term. So ready for and dealing with and kind of have to deal with are, I think, for me, different terms. So what put, what put this on your radar with regards to safer shopping? Is this something, was this based on a personal experience or have, did you see a trend? Yeah. So I would say that the trend I probably have been paying the most attention to, although I'm in Edmonton, I'm from BC. I just moved to Edmonton last month Welcome. and we have, oh yeah, thank you. It's wonderful here. Uh, we have had a, 
a bit of a journey with masks in British Columbia specifically, and it took us a, uh, a longer time than many of the other provinces to have a provincial mask mandate. So we had a lot of issues between businesses and consumers early on in the pandemic when there was no mandate. And knowing that the mandate was coming to an end, uh, we wanted to actually form this directory as a way to try and minimize some of those problems that are occurring and unfortunately have started to occur, uh, which we saw yesterday where someone was in Tim Hortons trying to just go get their breakfast. They were wearing a mask and they were berated by two members within Tim Hortons. They were told that they were engaging in tyranny, that this only kills, you know, the weak. And that's something that people are sort of dealing with when they're just trying to go get their breakfast. And we want to minimize those interactions if we can. Yeah. For all these anti-maskers that are big on personal freedoms, they sure seem to be taking a lot of interest in what other people wear on their faces, don't they? Right. And that's the hard part is like, okay, Alberta and BC have pulled the mask mandate provincially. So that means it's now an issue of personal choice, of personal necessity, those sorts of things. But as soon as we see systems that are trying to help people navigate that personal responsibility, we're having this backlash of people that are angry, that we're trying to help these people then navigate that system. Yeah, it's it's been interesting. I've, I've, I've just been seeing people posting on social media about these exact types of interactions that you've described um, at Tim Hortons, but all over the place. And uh, mm-hmm. and, and you kind of wonder, I mean, I, I, I wonder where that goes in, in worst case scenario. You've got, you know, private citizens arguing with one another about something that's really is neither of each other's business, considering the mask mandate's been lifted. Now, your project obviously reiterates that private businesses can really operate under whichever terms they like. So what does safer shopping entail? I mean, who qualifies to be listed on this website of yours? Yeah, so we started with the really basic of those stores that simply still have both a staff and customer mask mandate. So that is what started growing and people added stores in. Now we've opened it up so that more stores can be added that if they're not having a customer mask mandate and they have something like appointment times or they offer like a certain hour where compromised people can come in that they can add their stores as well. Because again, the purpose is not to be blacklisting businesses. And we have a statement on there that like, if you have the sort of almost health privilege that you don't have to worry about this, you have already had double dose, you're not worrying about these things, then go visit those stores that you want to visit, right? Like, nobody's telling you not to. And there's many of us that are still using those stores, but online or doing it in other ways. This is really people sort of take it to the extreme that somehow we're saying don't visit other businesses. And that's not it. These people genuinely have to be able to navigate their day to day life now when they have one vaccine or they can't get vaccinated. Right. Or they are having cancer treatment, right? Like think about that Tim Hortons person. What if that's someone who's in chemotherapy right now? Yeah. Well, it's just right? and, and, and also yelling at them. Well, sure. But also just it's not that person's business. <laughs> like, can yes. I just can I say that, too? Like, it's none of your business. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. My, my reaction, I'm, I'm almost this is not a productive nor mature comment, but I almost I almost find myself like waiting for the first person to say something to me. Like, I'm just I'm just ready because I feel but like that's the problem, right, is we're at that place where the mask divisiveness has increased so dramatically that we can't go shopping. 100 percent. Right. 
people are trying to get their prescriptions and they're getting in like altercations and our teenage children who are essential workers are having to argue with people take you know getting angry at them for wearing a mask calling them sheep like sometimes getting physically in their space um you know older workers immunocompromised workers are still out there and it's for me it's really horrifying that people are going to work every day going shopping every day trying to navigate that and this is really meant to just try and minimize those sort of interactions so let's be clear in in cases i i think you've you've described it very well but let's be clear you have not come up with a list of businesses that are unsafe this is not a public shaming exercise you're compiling a list of businesses that you would deem to be safer not safe safer uh yeah. But I would imagine that you're still getting piled on. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> yeah. I don't. I shouldn't laugh. But are you? Do you have your own little group of haters? Oh, oh, I, yes, of course, of course. Unfortunately, um, that just comes with being on the internet, trying to interact on the internet. That is just life on the internet and social media at this time. So yes, we have um, false entries. I can deal with those. The things that are really, um, I think, harmful to me are the people that continue to tell people to their face that it doesn't matter if they die. And I really wish that people would stop saying that, you know, in terms of like some sort of we've gotten back to this social Darwinism of some sort of like, I don't really care if you can't survive. And they're just saying that to people now. And it's 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 really distressing and horrifying as someone who's in clinical psychology to know that. This is how people are treating each other on a day-to-day basis. And politics and the government have played a significant role in those interactions and how we have, as a community, dealt with masks. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, the whole idea, I mean, we, I've, I've ranted on this before and I won't again about comorbidities, how people how people treat. First of all, you should not use the word comorbidity if you cannot spell it. I believe that that's rule number one. But number two, if you don't understand what it is, then you most certainly should not be using it or invoking it in an argument for or against wearing masks. People will say, well, the average person ha- you know, has these comorbidities, the average person who dies from COVID-19. I mean, that could be that they had asthma as a kid. It could be that they're fighting right. cancer. It could be that, that they're 30 pounds overweight. I mean, these are comorbidities that are pretty common. I have an autoimmune disease, yeah. right? Like I and children have diabetes yeah. and there are lots of kind of genetic issues that may cause an inherent immune system issue. Yes, people who are com- Compromised are actually all around you. And that's why I say it's quite heartbreaking to see this language being used regularly because of the impact it's having on these groups. So can you can we dig in? I mean, Crystal, you're you're you know working on your your doctorate in clinical psychology. I mean, can we your your website's great. It's a great resource. We've linked to it in, in our live chat. Sarah will tweet out if you you probably already have uh, from our Real Talk RJ Twitter account. If people want to s- sign up and take a look, they can add a business. They can interact with your website. It's a great resource. Let's talk bigger picture about you. As I mean, you're you're a trained. You're, you're a, an educated psychologist. Your, your wheelhouse is understanding the human psyche, understanding what makes people tick. How have you processed? And it, it's a big, broad, wide question on purpose. How have you processed yeah. what you've seen from human beings over the last year and a half? Oh, okay. That's a, of course, as you know, a broad question and, and loaded. Um, it's twofold. And I think anybody who, you know, is willing to reflect on that sees the twofold nature of the pandemic. It's been eye opening in many ways, right? It's educated people in all sorts of ways. It's um, taught us about 
ways that we're failing, I think, in many ways. Um, I'm truly, truly heartbroken by the lack of humanity that has occurred. Um, not specifically, I will never say individuals, businesses, those sorts, from the government. So for me, from the government, particularly in BC, um, Alberta's following suit. They've been very similar, but there's been a very uh, sort of acceptance towards the fatalities by John Horgan, if you haven't noticed lately, mm. whether it's COVID or whether it's heat deaths. The heat deaths comment was seniors. pretty cold, yeah. Uh, and, and, and yesterday he came out saying, yeah, we weren't really prepared. I was a bit giddy, you know, about ending the state of emergency, right? Like those are things that are being said by our government. Um, and like my grandma died from COVID in long-term care and didn't have access to some of the basic things that other provinces did. And that part is still a struggle I have because we haven't fixed those things. I'm sorry for your loss. Um, you say that's still a struggle you have. That's a that's a pretty diplomatic way of putting it. I know for a lot of people, the the the, the emotional impact of this. I mean, I don't invoke PTSD lightly. I don't just throw that word. I don't throw mm-hmm. that around that acronym. But there will be people. I mean, we've we've just read before we talk to you, uh, Crystal, a couple of emails from a paramedic firefighter, you know, from people that have insight from a registered nurse. Um, and it's not just healthcare workers like I no. mean, healthcare workers have done amazing things. Don't get me wrong. Teachers. I have, I have to throw them in there because Can, in yes. BC particularly they have just they were told they were not allowed to leave. They were not allowed to strike. They were not allowed to demand any sort of preventative measures. Yeah. Um, and a lot of them are ready to leave leave that um, occupation as well, which is, I think we've really underestimated the trauma that we've caused to a lot of the population in trying to get back to normal and so, so what not this, doing it in that way. Yeah. And, and, and the whole, even the whole thing about normal, uh, even, even the, the fact there that there is no normal, there is no normal. And you and I are going to hear from people. We're reminders of that though. Right. And I think that's where the anger comes from is that, When I go out in my mask, when I go out and I'm talking about that these people died in long-term care, it's a reminder the pandemic's not over. It's a reminder that we're still dealing with those things, that the trauma continues, right? Nobody likes the uncertainty of the pandemic. It is traumatizing for everybody. Um, But the feelings that a lot of people have, that uncertainty that is feelings that marginalized people deal with every day of their life, this fear, right? That, and we know that right now, the stats coming out of British Columbia show that racialized communities are the more likely to be harmed by COVID and by the excess morbidity and mortality or sickness and death 11 times more. And we're still not dealing with that. We know that we have the data now. And our public health officer said the other day that thinking we have twice as many deaths she takes with a grain of salt. I don't know how we're supposed to do anything on the ground when that's our public health officer's um, approach to it. And I would love to hear ideas from people that that have ways to move forward because we're struggling on the ground to move forward. Let's before before we get ahead of ourselves here, my friend, let's uh, people can can <laughs> people can share their credentials with us before we solicit yeah. their advice on where Absolutely. we should go from here, because I think we've it all had our, anyway. yeah, we've had, 
<laughs> it's yeah, Ecclesiastes, nothing matters anymore. But we've had we've had our yeah. fair share of people sharing their advice on how this pandemic should be managed. And I'm trying to limit think, it to those with letters behind thing their is, name. Is like we all want to move forward. We all want to go forward and get to whatever that new normal is. But this we is want the, to go back to it. But, but 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 here's the thing. Like I was I was just talking about the politicization of, of things like the Calgary Stampede. Mm-hmm. OK, Everything is being politicized. It's a very it's a divisive political strategy that we've seen provincially. We've seen federally. We've seen internationally um, where, you know, you see right now, for example, when when people will be hesitant about lifting a mask order, as an example, as you know, the city of Calgary still has it in place, or at least unless there's been developing news and haven't paid attention. But but Edmonton had lifted it and it was somewhat controversial in Edmonton, a vote of seven to six on council. Some people are losing their minds. Other people are saying it's about time. And I started seeing messaging from people making 200 grand a year uh, on the public purse, spokespersons for political representatives for the provincial government saying things like, I know people on the left don't want this pandemic to end, or I know that people on the left want this pandemic to last forever. And it's kind of like, I'm watching this stuff. Calgary did lift its mask mandate. Thanks to Sarah Hoyle. Stay on t- she stays on top of this, so I don't have to. But, yeah. <laughs> but you, you know exactly what I'm talking about, Crystal, that it turns into a thing where even mask wearing. I was saying earlier, climate change should not be a left versus right issue. No. Health policy should not be either. No, and and that's the, the horrifying part, right, is we've seen public health merge with the politicization this over the pandemic in just a massive way that we haven't seen before. And that's what a lot of the people I know, and I'm party list. I don't, I don't associate with any party. I vote all over the place, but you and me both. I work with with all sorts of people across all sorts of spectrums. Right. And people just want to feel like the government actually gives a shit if they die. Sorry if I swore. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear there. We always um, say it's but, our it's our unofficial motto here on Real Talk. You can say whatever the fuck you want. Okay, yeah. okay perfect. But um, yeah, it comes back to what I said at the beginning, that at an individual level, people are hearing from the government right now that their life doesn't matter, hmm. that there's like a line, but also that we can get data that says that black and indigenous people and people of color are the ones that are disproportionately paying the price for this reopening. And we're still willing to go forward with it. Right. And I think we need to start having those conversations and asking why we're okay with that. And what does that mean? And whether we should own up to it, if we're at least going to move forward with it. Yeah. Cause there's kind of this sense, isn't there of like the trains leaving the station and, yes. and you're either on the train or you're not. That's what it feels like to a certain degree. And, and I understand well, and, that that public policy, let's be fair, has to move that way yeah. in, in a way. Right. But this is where yeah. it falls. This is what brings us back to your website and to this project, the Safer Shopping Network, is that public policy may be uh, we're lifting mask mandates. Stores can return to you know regular capacity under fire code, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but that doesn't mean that a private business, I mean, some restaurants, I've seen restaurants near my house. Some of them are still doing uh, takeout only still. That's yeah. their personal choice. Now, I may question the business wisdom of that, but guess what? It's not my business. But I would also say that consider that that person could be in cancer treatment. Totally. That owns that restaurant that they could write. Like there's all these reasons that people don't consider. And at the end of the day, like we're not telling you to frequent anywhere. That's why I'm laughing at the people that come and get angry at the site. I'm like, just don't use it. Like 
just don't use it. Don't look at it. What's yeah. why? <laughs> it's why I take complaints about Real Talk very, very, very seriously. You don't like it? Beat it. But, but that's our that other motto. Personal choice issue, right? If we're going to move forward with personal choice, we also have to accept what that means for the groups of people that are at risk and that they have to adapt to it, too. And like penalizing them for that or or yelling at them in stores because they're wearing a mask is just nonsense at this point. And I hope that um, through these conversations and these tools, we can get away from that sort of divisiveness and the conflict because those, you know, people were shot last year during the pandemic over masks. We need to remember how serious this was for people. I, I'm curious to, to pick your brain. I mean, you're, you know, you we have like a, you know, you're completing your doctoral uh, studies in <laughs> clinical psychology. So you obviously are going to see it always makes me nervous, like like over beers or glasses of wine to talk to psychologists like ca- casually because I'm like, are you psychoanalyzing me this entire time? Like what's going on yeah. between your ears while you're talking to me? But but yeah. I'm curious, to know like even in my own personal life and there will be some this is my opinion. Um, but I, there, some people have surprised me <clears throat> over the past year and not in a good way. Um, yeah. you know, like, like yeah. I just talked to a buddy the other day about his perspective on vaccines and I was like, you really, <laughs> you like, I, yeah. wow. Um, you know, and, and I think everybody knows what I'm talking about cause they probably experienced that in their own life of like the one person or maybe the hundred people they unfriended yep. on Facebook or the person that they're pr- not sending a Christmas card to anymore because they've seen a side of people over the last year and a half that is just, I don't know that they can walk that back. The psychology of of how this all works. Mm -hmm. Um, Will our COVID-19 recovery include, do you think reconciliation on the friend front or on the family front for people? Or do you think that one of the spinoffs from COVID-19, there will be some permanent damage done? Um, Unfortunately, I think there's permanent damage. I think that when we, trauma doesn't always bring out the best in us at an individual level or at a societal level. Um, And it is why I steer away from criticizing individuals and sort of businesses and stuff, because I, the government sort of holds this institution of setting the mood for us. And, and that's where a lot of it broke down. And, you know, it's hard for me to critique people that are anti-mask when public health has said certain things that they're quoting. Right. Or when they have been the the media and the interactions around vaccines or certain things, the way that they're put out there, because I'm a researcher, right? Like I'm not just a clinician. I've, I've defended mm-hmm. my dissertation already. Um, all of my stuff has been in research. That's why I'm involved in a lot of this is I like stats and data. Um, and it's just, we, yeah, we're just, we're, we're failing there. We've failed in scientific literacy within the media. So we have not had critical media in terms of pushing back when there are things said that are not evidence-based. And that's a big part of the problem because as an individual, you and I can absolutely have different um, thoughts on masks, on vaccines, et cetera, right? Like we are individuals, that's our right. When we get to that public health policy, we need to start having discussions about where that line is because we don't vaccinate, uh, you know, vaccines in many health settings right now. We need to start having the conversation maybe of what that looks like and how we have those conversations and in what jurisdictions are going to be needed because the answer post-pandemic, I think, 
is not always going to be just let people do whatever they want in certain settings because it, it won't be the safest option anymore. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, thinking of the long term, we, we speculate, we you know, sort of employed this exercise from time to time, speculating around what the long term impacts of the pandemic might be. And we talked to the commercial realtors about how the workspace or you know the workforce may change the work from home movement. We've obviously talked about masks and things like that, physical distancing policy, even things like regular habits. People have hand sanitizers availability here or there. People's awareness around how how disease spreads. <clears throat> I'd be curious yeah. to know your take on, on on masks three years from now um it's it's been yeah. it's been absolutely completely normal for for decades and as an example in many asian cultures uh, for people out of out of consideration and community well-being and the greater good if people are feeling sick or lousy or just if they want to right. wearing masks when they're out and about i can see myself right. doing that moving forward do you think that the greater society you think there'll be a sort of a greater movement of masks two three five ten years from now well, I think there will be, uh, and there already is, because the people that were immunocompromised, that were going about life, at, like myself included, um, getting sick all the time, like getting colds, getting flus, often because other people aren't necessarily not coming to work when they're sick, all those sorts of things. I'll be wearing a mask indoors, you know, in stores, in those settings where I don't know people, which is what's recommended by Public Health Agency of Canada and WHO right now, right? And... It, I just, I think we really need to start incorporating psychology and human behavior into the policies because that is not considered right now. And until we consider that, we are just, the divisiveness is continuing to breed, as you see, right? The This is not going to have any lack of anti-mask comments and those sorts of things. And we have to find a way to bring us back together in some sort of way, at least policy-wise. Hmm. Um when it, when it comes to uh, I mean this type of thing, we're 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 all our perspectives are all uh, so much richer uh, having access to perspectives like yours. Um, I know it's it's an unusual sort of a thing to to ask for people that have things like research and data and evidence informing opinions, but it's actually pretty important to us. And so, yeah. <laughs> Crystal, we're really grateful uh, that you've made time for us. I'm struck by your 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 very uh, astute and valid observation around media literacy and. Um, in particular, I mean, this is just, I'm just going to step on a soapbox for for 10 seconds here. But um, we're seeing that those conversations on at least two fronts right now. Number one, in reporting around mm -hmm. uh, the legacy of residential schools and these yes. uh, really difficult conversations that are being had and, and media are being called upon, including internally through the Canadian Association of Journalists to do a better job uh, of, 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 of more sensitive and trauma aware reporting. Um, and then on this front as well, and I think that it's been through the course of COVID-19, it's been very difficult for you know members of the media. We've recognized um, health professionals. We've recognized educators. We've recognized the food delivery drivers and, and those in catering and restaurants and hospitality yeah. and so many other services. People that show up every day to work minimum wage, to work a gas station, to make sure people can. I mean, everybody, um, but journalists as well have done an unbelievable job over the past year and a half, really uh, getting outside the norm of, of what their beat may have called, what their assignment meetings may have looked like every morning. That well, and that's the thing. Most people don't have the prerequisite knowledge to be talking about those exactly. things. And that's what we need to be working on, right? Yeah. 
thanks for this. Uh, congratulations on your project and congratulations in advance on, on, on your studies. Again, people can, can check it out. It's uh, safeshoppingnetwork.nac.com. We've linked to it on the, the live chat on, on YouTube. Uh, we'll push it out from our official Real Talk RJ Twitter account as well. Crystal Mundy, the founder of Safer Shopping Network, our guest. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. Um, she's talking about this was this was you know kind of what pissed you off about me um, a while ago, wasn't it? When we were talking about how Edmonton City Council voted on lifting the mask mandate, mm. I could t- we, you and I have never talked about this. Let's hash it out on air. But I oh perfect because well because we're pals, we can do this. Yep. But remember, you you were annoyed at me because I I said the base uh, i mean what you should base your decision on in my mind is science and advice from medical professionals and when you take a look at you know whether it's been the the federal government the provincial government or municipal governments um or even in some cases workplaces people have have built their policy and rolled it out based on data and advice from Mm -hmm. medical professionals Mm -hmm. and so they have said things like we're locking down or we're imposing a mask mandate because of these numbers, right? Because of how many new hospitalizations, new cases, deaths, ICU admissions, you know, rates of infection or spread or whatever the case. Um, and when that same data or those same expert voices say we've reached a point where we can start to ease the mask mandates, then I think that it's acceptable. I stopped myself from saying wise, but it's acceptable and it makes sense for elected officials to continue to trust the same numbers, to continue to read from the same playbook. You know, the Montreal Canadiens is actually probably a bad example. I love you. I I don't say they're not going to adopt a new playbook tonight, but maybe they will. You never know. Um, But but you don't you don't sort of, you know, what do they say? You don't change. Boats midstream. What's midstream, the euphemism you don't, I'm looking you for? Don't change like direction. You don't change direction. You, yeah, you get the point right. I'm making. So if you've been saying we base this lockdown, we base this mask mandate on these numbers and this advice, then if those same numbers start to drop and the advice is that you can now lift it, I think the move is to lift it. That does not mean that everybody is required to remove their masks. You can do whatever you like. Absolutely. I guess to me that the whole... <laughs> And maybe this is not going to be a shocker to you. I would say the the logic of saying that masks come off when numbers go down is flawed in that that's reactive. When we're looking at hospital numbers, when we're looking at, um, you know, infection numbers, those are reactive. That's basically two weeks from when somebody got covid and so, and looking at what the Delta variant is doing, yeah. it's masks are still vital to try to control that beast. And the but if WHO, the Delta variant the starts de- to roll, if, I mean, if it starts to become a thing again, do you remember the number? I mean, we remember the numbers. Like there were times when it was like 1,800 new cases in, in, in Western provinces in each province per day. I mean, there were numbers that you could barely wrap your mind around. We cracked 2,000 a couple times. Cracked 2,000 a couple times. Yeah. There was like, there were 600 plus people in ICU uh, at one point. If I remember correctly, oh, I should be careful on that. I'm going off the top of my head. Maybe that was the number that maybe that was the crisis number actually, but, but, but there were those numbers. I mean, everything, everything really is reactive. 
You try to you if if you want to start talking about the politics of proactive health policy, I've got all day for that. But if we're going to talk about proactive health policy, we're going to start to fund things like nutrition programs in schools. We're going to start to fund people like better education around things like tobacco and alcohol. We're going to start to fund or restore funding for supervised consumption services. We're going to do a ton of stuff if we're actually going to talk about investing in proactive health care. It's cheaper. The sad thing is, is that we don't because you've got to pay up front. You've got to convince people. And for a politician that's got to get reelected every four years or so, um, you've got to convince people that we're going to spend more on this right now. But trust us, in in 12 years or 15 years or a generation from now, you're going to see dramatic change. And and, and the electorate is going to go, all I know is that my taxes are going up and you're out of here in three years. And so the politicians won't take action. There's no political will. Right. And so I think the fact that mask mandates have been dropped and we're being reactive about when we have mask mandates, it tracks. It's completely in line with with not doing preventative medicine. Hmm. So, I mean, I'm not shocked. I'm I'm disappointed. I I just Crystal's perspective, informed perspective. Yeah, she's great. Yeah, I found that I found I part of me like halfway through the interview. I'm going, am I talking enough about her website? It wasn't really about the website. I mean, the website is great. And it isn't yeah. safer shopping networks neat. And it's a great concept. And it's and it's going to be really helpful for a lot of people that are looking for businesses where they can go and feel a little bit more safe, even if it's their own personal feeling. Um, but she's she's had, she had such great intuition and such great perspective on Insights. the bigger picture stuff, too, yeah. as well. Um, we've just I've noted from our live chat and I can I can verify it here uh, from a trusted source that um, listeners, audience members are letting us know that the uh, the town of Okotoks has seen Mayor Bill Robertson pass away. The announcement made today. Uh, Mayor Robertson was originally elected a councilor in 1995 and served then until 2010 when he was elected as mayor. Um, he was reelected 2013, 2017, but announced a couple of months ago he would not be running in the upcoming municipal election this fall. Um, the announcement made by Deputy Mayor Florence Christophers, who says that uh, his worship passed away on July 7th today. Uh, the quote, uh, part of a release, uh, Bill will be profoundly missed both as a great leader in our community and as a mentor and a friend. Our thoughts with the uh, family of Mayor Bill Robertson, obviously his council colleagues and our uh, audience members in the town of Okotoks, just south of Calgary. It was after a, a battle with cancer. Yeah, he'd been fighting that for a while. Um, and I always appreciate the heads up from Real Talk audience members that keep us on our toes as well. The team at Kubi Energy is, of course, as you know, behind this exercise in positivity. We roll it out our first show every single week, uh, typically on a Monday. We call it Positive Reflections, and it's your way to share with us the stories that have just made your day, somebody that made a difference in your life, something that made you smile, something that made you laugh out loud. You can send us your Positive Reflections to talk at ryanjesperson.com, and we want to let you know that coming up this next Monday, we've got a big announcement, a contest. This is the biggest contest in real talk history presented by our friends at kubi energy achieve your sustainable energy goals and right now cash in on up to nine thousand dollars in incentives on a new solar installation you can get the details from the team at kubi energy also a big shout out to the team at eden landscaping eden is known across the province for bringing your outdoor space to life a custom landscape 
builder with more than 20 years of on-the-ground experience in Edmonton and area. One of the things that people love about working with Mike and his team at Eden is it's the one-stop shop. You're not paying a landscape architect to drop plans and then hiring a general contractor to make it happen and then dealing with all the trades that are coming in to whatever it is, run pipe, run electrical, run natural gas. They handle it all. And if you want to see what their projects look like, they've got a great portfolio, again, at landscapeedmonton.ca. Oh, I just love, I love the live chat, the chatterbox, if you will. Um, Someone just asked if the big announcement coming on Monday is about giving out stampede passes. Yes, it is. It's a lottery. And all you have to do is sign up, uh, subscribe to us on YouTube, and you too could be on your way. Uh, no, I, I think it's pretty obvious what the prize is going to be, but I don't want to spoil it. From Kubi Energy? You'll, you'll never guess what the Tesla certified solar installer is giving away to one lucky Real Talk audience. Remember, it's going to be a huge game changer. Sunscreen. Probably sunscreen. They probably include sunscreen in it when they install hat. your... Wait till Monday. Christmas lights, all paid for by the team at Kubi Energy. <laughs> uh, this, there's no, uh, we, we were just like yesterday. So we're, we, we get news. News comes down about half an hour before we go live on, uh, on yesterday's show that Mary Simon, uh, named Governor General, uh, the 30th Governor General in Canada's history. And we're learning a little bit about Mary Simon. And we got this great video, and this was passed along to us, which I, I really appreciated. I wanted to give you a sense of, we talked about the advocacy work that she's done in representing uh, Indigenous populations, in particular in Canada's north, but across the country over a series of decades. I mean, really remarkable work internationally and here at home and and this i think really i mean this to me this is a this is a w- w- when you find that intersection of humanity and professionalism um pierre elliott trudeau you know one of canada's more notable former prime ministers i think known for his for his sharp tongue never heard of him when you when you when you take a look at, at his comments around the FLQ crisis, when you take a look at some of the bravado that Just he had, which me. was not always appreciated, um, you're going to see that on display here, and and it gives you a sense too. I think of the sincerity. There's a bit of exasperation, which I think says a lot. But the video will speak for itself. This is back in 1984. Uh, this is Canada's now Governor General Mary Simon. She was she was taking part. And she was speaking to the need to include an equality clause in Section 35 of the Canadian Constitution. So this, this is coming up on 40 years ago. And this was taking place. And it's about a minute long. This was during the Federal Provincial Conference of First Ministers on Aboriginal Constitutional Matters. She was one of the only women that spoke during the conference. And here she is toe to toe with Trudeau. And yet we're talking about a fundamental right. Uh, I wish, I wish you and your sisters would take it out of your head that somehow we're deliberately trying to frustrate the concept of equality. At least in the law, everybody is assured here, you hear that we are not. You know, in a sense you're equal when you think you're equal. And if you think you're unequal, the law won't change much. Simon? 
Mr. Prime Minister, I, I consider myself an equal. I am a, a, an Aboriginal representative that represents both male and female persons in Northern Quebec. And, I'll, and I've always tried to be very unbiased towards who I represent because I feel that as people we have one interest and that is our collective and individual rights. And all I'm saying here is that as someone that represents both sides, I'd like to see the Equality Clause once and for all settled. And it's now 3, 3.35 and uh, I don't see how, how we can go on much longer with this. There you have holding government feet to the fire, advocating for indigenous people in Canada for many, many years. That's just some background, some insight into Mary Simon uh, yesterday announced as Canada's 30th governor general. Coming up tomorrow, we've got a great show in store. As mentioned, we've rescheduled Emily Atkins. She's going to talk to us about Exxon's tactics, BP2, how to talk to your kids about residential schools. Plus, one of my favorite authors, the super talented Omar Mualim. That's coming up tomorrow on Real Talk. We'll see you then.